is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing our elementary school bookshelf, the books we discovered before the age of 13, the ones that made a big impact on us as young readers and continue to make their presence known today. Now, we're talking about those first books that we read to pieces, the one that you know helped us awaken us to vast worlds of imagination and wonder, the ones that introduced us to people who lived in our hearts, places that resided in our minds, and ideas that stoked our thirst for knowledge. The best of them were, and still are, so compelling that we have been chasing that initial exhilaration ever since, searching for the book that would transport us back to the days when we first explored the stacks of the local library, when we freaked out over the latest Scholastic Book Club flyer on our desk, and when we begged our parents for money so we could clean out the annual school book fair. These are the books that have never really left us, uh, even if we might have forgotten them a little bit along the way. They're the ones that we read and loved and that provided us with the kind of intellectual, emotional, and moral context that we would need to successfully navigate the many tomorrows yet to come. Now, a lot of the books we're going to talk about in today's episode are still available in one form or another, whether you find them on Amazon or eBay or, more importantly, your local bookseller. And they're just as compelling to new young readers as they ever were to us. They are still fantastic and transformative reads when we go back to them. And they are still the best evidence of something that Marianne Karras, the founder of the beloved children's literary magazine Cricket, used to say, the rarest kind of best in anything is good enough for children. I could not agree more. So let's get into it. With me today is assistant librarian Chris Crenshaw. The book you're looking for has a blue cover, you say. <laughs> Bookmobile stunt driver Tom Hespos. Let's see how fast this scholastic book fair van goes. <laughs> and nine-time Caldecott winner no-show Joe Pace. I was so close. <laughs> Outstanding. So, look, when we set up this episode, when we talked about this kind of backstage and what we wanted to do, all four of us were so excited about, about this. We were like, what are the 10 we're going to pick? We're going to bring this thing rapid fire. So this is going to be a Thunder Round episode for sure. We're going to start round one. Tom, kick us off. Talk us through what it is for those who may not have read it already. And then give us some insight on as to why do you love us so much? The Great Brain, which is a um, book with, I think there's seven or eight books in the series by a guy, uh, John Fitzgerald. Uh, it's an autobiographical series about his growing up in 1898 in um, like middle of nowhere, small town, Utah. It's, it's a really interesting series. Like he's, he's this sort of younger brother to this sort of genius prodigy, the great brain, his older brother, Tom. Really, it's all about how his older brother ends up basically either swindling everybody in the town or just coming up with these crazy money-making schemes and uh, ends up like <laughs> as this kid who has like more money than most adults in the town. And <laughs> it's, it's this great series about like every chapter usually has some sort of like shenanigan that he pulls yeah. in town. And it was just wow. such hilarious. I had a great moment of truth with it when uh, one of the things that they did was in the book was um, they went out and, and played this game in like a canyon where they went out basically, these are like the ultimate free range kids. You know, I thought yeah, I had right. a free range childhood, but these kids were like out everywhere. They played basically like a game of tag, but like on horses in the middle of a uh, hide and seek on horses Yo. where like basically this huge canyon area in Utah was their playground. And like, 
that just woke up my brain for a second. I was like, Ooh, we could do that. Like in my neighborhood. And instead of having, you know, like a tag game where it's somebody's yard, we'll like, we use the whole freaking neighborhood. And it was just, <laughs> that's right. how the game of manhunt yeah, right. was invented in my neighborhood as a kid. Yeah. Like, it was just such a great book series for just like waking up my, you know, my brain and, and, um, you know, giving me new ideas about things we could do as free range kids. And uh, it, it was just a, a terrific time. I love the whole series or seven or eight books in the series. I think. Yeah. I heard about the great brain, but I never actually saw it or read it. Right. But I knew, I knew it was out there. So walk me through, I mean, like, is this, was this a book that was like, was it being published at the time when you read it? Was it like already out there waiting in the library? It was to check out it there out? as a children's book for a while. I, I can't remember exactly when it was published, but yeah, it had been like an established book. Like when I was in elementary yeah. school, my mom was really fond of bringing me home books and like having them be like the third in a series of seven or, you know, like she gave yeah. me like, she never gave me the first book. I would read one book, <laughs> love it, oh and God. then go back and read the ones that came before it. So that's how she handled the great brain. And uh, I had to go out on eBay to go find them because they're really out of print now and it's hard to locate them. Okay. Uh, just so I can give them to my kids and, and you know, let them have the same experience that I did. <laughs> so that's going to be my, my follow-up question was that, is the book still readily available or is it just like kind of, is this like slowly kind of falling into the, the dusty corners of, of, it, of, of history? It's fading into obscurity and it's quite sad because it really just was that's my number odd. one series. I read them like until I wore out my copies and like I had yeah. second copies as kids. Like I really literally wore them out. <laughs> so a, a, as a budding data hoarder myself, have you tried going on like archive.org to see if there's like a you know just a copy there can you get a digital copy is it legal i don't know but, but like are there are there copies on archive you can at least check out to know that they're there because like it, it stresses me out when cool books like this that mean something to a generation of people start going away and i start wondering like okay wait a minute what if we lose this thing like what is it being preserved somewhere apart from on the secondhand print copy circuit right like like you know mm -hmm library no you know what, what's going on I have, i've looked for digital copies i haven't been able to find them i mean the authors listed you know and then in, in book yeah. databases and everything everybody knows this exists yeah. finding digital copies is yeah. really you know it may be that someday i have to tear apart the books you see behind me in the bookshelf and, and scan, you know, them. scan them in myself yeah. because uh this can't fade away into obscurity <laughs> Chris mentioned the Library of Congress. Chris, I can tell you right now, when society falls and we're all using bullets for money, okay, like my first trip will be to organize a very large armed party to go to Washington and get the books that matter to me out of the Library of Congress. I can hang on to them so some joker doesn't like, you know, burn them, you know. For, Remember to bring a lot of trash bags. Water a lot of them is are important. Here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So is there one particular book in the series that really like just stands out? Either it's the first one you read or it's the one that you absolutely love the most that just that just really jumps out at you as kind of the, the, the one standard of the last bearer for books, the series? I think it's book number seven is is called The Great Brain at the Academy. So like this guy, you know, he grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere in Utah. Like literally he had to jump on a train and go like live with relatives or something to go to high school. They end up sending, you know, uh, this Utah. boy to uh, like a Jesuit academy. It's all about him taking all the knowledge that he acquired, like swindling everybody in his hometown and bringing it to this Jesuit academy and like putting one over on the priests and stuff like that. It was really wow. just such a fantastic book for a juvenile delinquent like right. me. Open, you know, open <laughs> what, my what kid, like, wow, you can really screw with people. <laughs> what kid doesn't love reading about sticking it to the man? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's the whole appeal. <laughs>
Well, you know, I haven't read The Great Brain, but already I'm loving it. You know why? Because it proves once again, we've said this before, and I'll say it again, charisma is not a dump stat, okay? <laughs> great Brain proves it. <laughs> I adore it. All right, Joe, what's the one you're picking to go with first that you really love? Walk us through what the book series or what the book is about and what it is that you love so much about it that it kind of gets this, this vaunted place in your, in your mind. I'm going to lead off with E.B. White. There are things to love about each of E.B. White's three classic children's novels, right? I mean, Charlotte's Web is an achingly mm -hmm. poignant fable about love and loss and the durability of friendship. It's also got the best named character of all time, Fern Arable. Is there a better name for a character ever than that? <laughs> Uh, and then Stuart Little is a funny story about finding your way in a world that wasn't made for you. But and I yeah. read both of those many times as a youngster. But my favorite of the three has always been The Trumpet of the Swan. And I always felt it had a grander scope, a, a, a more heroic protagonist and a deeper sense of striving where Wilbur, the pig, was a, often a passive observer in his own story. And Stuart was a, a fairly blase tourist in life. Louis or Louis, the swan, was a creature of passion and ambition and drive. And that spoke to me as a kid look, this is a swan who was born without a voice. Like he can't engage in the rich cultural traditions of his species or attract a mate. And yet he endures, right? I mean, with the help of his family and his friends, he overcomes the challenges. He becomes his best self. His father's fierce devotion and, and you know, and thievery uh, delivers a trumpet and his human friend, Sam arranges for a chalk slate so he can write down, you know, in a classroom education. And so with these accommodations, Louis becomes a lifesaver, a nightclub performer. And in the end, he becomes a father in his own right. And, there are moments of uh, there are moments of farce and moments of sadness and moments of triumph and, and through it all, Louis displays the, a fully human range of emotions and motivations. And in the end, his disability is less crippling than enabling. And for a children's book from like nineteen seven or like the sixties, yeah, that's a remarkably modern and mature narrative about yeah, how support yeah. and love can help us conquer the things about us that would hold us back. So when it comes to E.B. White, I think Charlotte's Web is the most powerful. Stuart's Web, mm -hmm. uh, Stuart Little is the silliest, and then Trumpet of the Swan is the most beautiful. I, I just think there's so much about it that speaks to what reasonable accommodation can do. Like if you have disabilities, if you have things that are holding you back, if we do reasonable accommodation and, and help people, they can, they can realize their best selves. And that's, that's, that's yeah. en enormously powerful for a kid to read. Yeah. Especially for something yeah. that's now going on 70 years old. Um, <laughs> right. The fact that E.B. White could conjure that at that time is so timeless. And I, I, just, I, I love it even now. So one of the things I love so much about this range of literature, this age group of literature, is that the authors know they're hitting kids at a time before the world has taught them all kinds of horrible things that people generally spend the rest of their lifetime trying to unlearn if they unlearn them at all. So things like being accommodating and understanding the limitations of others and trying to make sure that they have a good chance in the world too. Like these things, these things really, really matter. These lessons really matter. And it's like getting them to sink in at kids at a time when they're in their really formative years is really important. And I think it's why, like we mentioned this topic, I love this topic so much because so many of the great books that we're going to talk about in their own way are taking their chance to say something important to a, an audience that they're not going to take, they're not going to look down upon or treat like they're, you know, they're less than intelligent and going, we have an opportunity to let you know it, let you in on something really, really important that maybe adults aren't going to always tell you as you get older. So take this to heart, right? And you have all these chances to take these beautiful things to heart. And so I, I, I get what you're saying about Trump of the Swan. The funny thing is I never actually came across this book until you mentioned it. I don't even know about this book, Joe. Like I know about oh. the first two, um, Read it to your grandchildren, like, wait, Bill. You're like you're like E.B. White. Like I got three books. You're like 
like Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little. I'm like, he's gonna drop Elements of Style. I can't believe it. Like he was watching, he was reading <laughs> Elements of Style, age 11. He's hardcore. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh no, okay, it's this one. So, no, Trumpet of the Swan, brother. It's yes. it's it's so beautiful. I, I will check it out after this podcast. I really will. I I, I think it's gonna be a good one to going to check out. So, fantastic. All right, so Chris, hit us with your pick for round one here. For me, honestly, I, I think it has to be the Chronicles of Narnia, which. Uh, I first encountered, I think, in the second grade with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As probably everyone knows, it, it's a semi-high ad- fantasy adventure story uh, set within a Christian allegory. And, you know, a- as a kid, allegory, I think, spoke to me because it made me feel smart. When when you see the connections as a kid, you're like, oh, oh, that means that. Aslan's Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and... <laughs> I don't know. It made me feel smart, I think. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, the, the, the stories, they, they had some real heart to them. Whatever you think of the, the proselytization, the, the messages are, are, are not bad. It awoke in me, a, you know, what became a lifelong love of fantasy and imaginative storytelling mm-hmm. that, you know, obviously... Yeah, I'm involved in this podcast. <laughs> That's a big part of my life. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, Chris, yeah. I never, I never felt that the like, that Lewis hit you over the head with the the Christian allegory. And Narnia, I mean, later as an adult, when you're more, you know, yeah. perspicacity comes into play, and you're like, oh, and you start to, you know, pull it apart. But as a kid, it's just high fantasy and adventure, right? Well, it's you know, I, I got those books from a Christian bookstore. So, you know, uh, this was like, well, okay, okay maybe this it was, was more clear to you. I get it. This okay. was like, my, you know, this is about God, right? Well, well, no, what, what, it, what it was stupid. What it really was, was my first training in informational hygiene. You know, like, yeah. like I have to evaluate what I'm reading based on where it comes from. And yeah. Yeah, so it was quite clear to me, but, but still I love them. And if you want to ask my favorite, it's gotta be the high King. Or not the hiking. That's Friday. Nah, the uh, the, that's, that's the last battle. Yeah. Um, that's a better that, series. Which it is. We're we're not supposed to mention it though. Um, well, we're gonna have a, okay. So spoiler, we're gonna have a whole episode <laughs> on the Chronicles of Friday. Okay, we were not, we're gonna talk about it, but we couldn't. We just, the cork had a pop in this, so we'll just take care of it now, guys. If you're waiting for us to go, well, where's the Chronicles of Prydain? Where's the High King? The Book of Three? The Black Hawk? Okay, you're not going to hear this episode, okay? You will hear it later on this this season, so stay tuned. Subscribe to Moments of Truth wherever you get your fine podcasts, and check it out, because we will have an episode all about the Chronicles of Prydain, and it's going to be fantastic. Which, anyway, go on, So you Chris. mean like the last battle or the return of the... The last battle, battle is the, the final book. Um it, it was just so battle, grand. Meaning, what, is, what do they call the last battle? It's like the, the what is it? The quickening or the the, the uh, <laughs> stop it? The rapture. You're about informational hygiene, and you're deliberately infecting the, the last series. dragon. <laughs> the last dragon. The last stop rapture. It. What do they call it? The no. last battle. <laughs> oh, I've lost control. I've lost control. All right, Chris. By all means, please continue on without the, you know. the Romney's nephew. What is it called? <laughs> Well, they, they, you know, they, they, the, the books are remarkably wholesome. Every one of them is actually yeah. really good and has worthwhile lessons for kids that, you know, yeah. are independent of their religious foundation. I don't know. I, I, I think they remain relevant. Um, I'm astonished that the film series never got finished. So I, I came across. We're never going to make seven movies out of that. Yeah, it's a lot. 
So I came across Chronicles of Narnia probably like 10 or 11. I had read Lord of the Rings for the first time and found it difficult. And I was like, one of something that I thought I was going to understand a little bit better or somebody or somebody had heard like, hey, if you read that, you should really check out Chronicles of Narnia. And it was like, I was at a book fair, actually, like a school book fair. And it was like, there's the whole series in like one box set. I'm like, oh, it was my first time actually reading a series of interconnected novels. And I was like, oh my God, I got, I've got the whole thing. Because like at that time, like what you're saying, Tom with the great brain getting like, oh, I'll have volume three of eight and then i'll read volume one okay that would have made my head explode like scanners okay i could not handle that kind of that kind of i just couldn't do it so chaos. getting the whole series dogs of, and cats yeah it's, it's living together it's chaos right <laughs> so getting the whole set at once mattered to me i read it and loved it and at the time you know we weren't particularly devout or anything and I got to tell you, the Christian allegory went right over Bill's shoulder. Like I just come, it missed me a hundred percent. I was, I was like, okay, this is like, this is like so G-rated D and D. Yes. This is okay. I'm, I'm totally digging this. I love it. Uh, but I will say this though: the last battle, which is just Lewis's take on Revelations and just mm -hmm. sort of the, the destruction of Narnia and all that, it was the first time I ever read something that created a world and then dismantled it. And seeing that happening in the narrative was deeply impactful to me. And and it was this notion that like. Just because a fantasy world is created doesn't mean it can't be destroyed. Doesn't mean it can't end. Doesn't mean that things that you think are going to be eternal aren't going to be eternal. Like that was that, that kind of shook me as a kid. Shook me in a good way because it made me think about things in a, on a deeper level. Not not religiously, just in terms of like maybe things don't always last. Maybe we need to you know value things in the moment because you know things things happen that we don't expect them to happen. And and it's that may not be what Lewis intended for a kid like me to think of. That's what I took away from it and. That's how it became more than just a simple fantasy story for me. I started thinking about the Im the impermanence of things, even when something like an entire world seems pretty darn permanent, you know? so They really are kind of sophisticated, those books. Uh, I would say that The Last Battle destroys the world. The magician's nephew deconstructs it. You know, mm -hmm. that's not a word that obviously I would have heard when I was 10. <laughs> but but uh <laughs> no but 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 that that really is what what's going on there and and you know honestly it's it's actually sort of from a literary theory standpoint that's i think it's c.s lewis kind of being ahead of the curve yeah, yeah. I, I will say chris that i I, was, I think i was like 10 i'd read parts of the hobbit but i hadn't tried the full lord of the rings yet and i, I was a 10 or 11 and i remember reading these yeah fourth fifth grade and they're more accessible in some ways yeah. at their surface yeah. level than than tolkien and mm -hmm. uh there were gateway drugs certainly to fantasy at that age yes and i, I remember the dawn treader the voyage of the dawn treader was the one oh, for yeah. me that was like it was all about like opening up the world like because the, the the line the witch in the wardrobe which was everybody's yeah. first read was yeah. oh here look a fantasy world oh, awesome but to me, I remember reading the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and being like, oh, look, we're going to go out beyond what you think. And there's a whole world beyond where there's islands and rivers yeah. and, and places to go. And the concept of world building as like a as a writer, as a role player, like all that stuff. It, it just, yeah. It, the, the horizons that C.S. Lewis does the Odyssey. Me, it was yeah. fantastic. I yeah. loved that a lot. I, I really yeah. I remember being 10 or 11 and loving Absolutely. that. And if I could pick a, a flying amber moment for Narnia, it would be that. Avoiding the problematic stuff from the last battle and, and the allegory stuff. Because to me, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader avoids a lot of that sure. allegory stuff and goes to more of a classical interpretation of, of the, 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 um, the voyage narrative. 
right like you and said a personal Odyssey. journey you know and, and, yeah. and the person of eustace yeah yeah no yeah. i found that to be and because it avoids the, the the main four characters it goes to eustace instead and it's to me that's not that, that's uh lewis just having a lot of fun in the world that he built yeah. Yeah. versus trying to good one no doubt make it mean something yeah. yeah those middle books are pretty cool i mean i, I remember i remember reading it like the silver chair i just Whoa. absolutely adored although although we'll say the silver chair stressed me the hell out as a young reader because in the very beginning our protagonist is it's like like he's given basically like a laundry list like first you have to do a and then proceed to b and then proceed to c and then proceed to d got it good and this magical like puff of wind he's like flying away and i remember as a kid reading wait a minute like what if I had forgotten? What was that middle part again? What was the middle part again? <laughs> I was so freaking out. I went back to the last page. I'll just keep reading it. Like, oh my god, it's messing with my head so hard. Like, I was so stressed out. This kid was gonna like forget what like step four in the quest was gonna be because I would have for sure. I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I went to Narnia and forgot my pencil and paper. You know, <laughs> like I'm such a Narnia dope. just exploded because Bill couldn't yeah. remember step four of the quest. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice job, Bill. Step four you're, was kill the dragon. You're a great idiot. disappointment to everybody. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty pretty much. Can you touch upon real quick? Because I think there are people who are going to hear this and they're going to go, "Well, what, you know, are they going to talk about the problem with Susan?" So, what's the problem with Susan in today's day and age with criticism? You can't talk about Chronicles of Narnia and not basically have that question arise, and you have to be able to, to answer it. So, what's the problem with Susan? C.S. Lewis's mental image of female adolescence. Susan uh, is one of four Pevensey children who uh, uh, escape the London Blitz to their uncle's country house uh, where they find a wardrobe that establishes to be a portal to a magical land called Narnia in which they are destined to become kings and queens. Susan in their initial adventure just kind of after their initial adventure sort of bails on it all and she can't go back to Narnia. She, she grows up too much and I don't know it's it's very uh, sort of old-fashioned role of women stuff, I think. A lot of it is Lewis's interpretation of what faith means. You have to have an untrammeled belief in Christ in the afterlife in order to ascend to that, and that Susan strayed from the path by liking boys. And that's when they talk about the problem with Susan. They, that That's the, the the context of it, right? And there's, there's two different uh, interpretations of that. One says, Oh no, she's been shunned because she's become too feminist. And the other side says, no, 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 she still has time, right? Like it's about yeah. that the voyage of faith and that process of like a lifetime of coming back to it. And so yeah. the problem of Susan is one of like, what does it mean to be faithful and what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean to to earn that afterlife? Is it being perfect or is it going through a life with you know, ups and downs and that roller coaster of moving closer and farther from what that, what that. As, as a theologian, C.S. Lewis might well have uh, presented that sort of an argument, but she lost her chance to be. Well, he out, says, right? no, I mean, she, he says she's out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, people have interpreted it to say that, oh no, she still has that's, time. That's not true. But <laughs> to me, Lewis says, no, 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 no. She liked pantyhose. Yeah. Chick is out. Yeah. So. Neil Gaiman wrote a fantastic story called The Problem with Susan. And it's basically, it's the notion of like, what if Susan didn't die in the, in the train wreck and now she's an old woman looking back on her life. 
And it's a really cool take on that whole thing and what it means to be excluded and to know you've been excluded and to live a long life knowing you're not going to follow where your brothers and sisters have gone. Gaming being gaming, who's just a master at his craft, writes a really cool, touching, poignant story about it. A lot of the books we talk about, some of them may not have aged so great or they may have problematic parts about them. And, and, and we're in a place now, as, especially as grown adults, we can actually talk about them going, I love this book at the time I read it because of X. But I realize now there's a problematic issue, which is why. And you can acknowledge that and still not have to disqualify the fact that this book meant a great deal to you at the time. It maybe still does mean a great deal to you. But, you know, you, you, can, you can acknowledge that there might be some, some issues with it, you know. And, and, and I think it's, it's important because sometimes there are some people who look at the problem of Susan and they disqualify the entirety of the Chronicles of Narnia because of it. Like, I'm not sure that really indicts the entirety of the thing. I mean, it's, it's still, it says a lot of things in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. So I'm not prepared to walk away from it because of Lewis's take on one particular character. There are actually more meaningful things on which I, I don't agree with C.S. Lewis. Right. So like, I'm not, <laughs> not going to get into a bar fight with the guy over the problem with Susan. We got bigger things that we're going to, we're going to tussle over. So I'm not, you That's know. like going to Tolkien and being like, you only had like two female speaking parts and they're very modest over the yeah, entirety yeah. of the eight billion words you wrote like come on <laughs> yeah come on dude so i'm going to bring up for my first choice the cave of time choose your own adventure number one by edward packard oh god i love this book so freaking much i can tell you when i first laid eyes on this book i was in gifted class i was like fourth grade maybe fifth grade and i saw this book collection like the first three books on the shelf i was like what is this i took the cover off and here's this i mean you got to take a look at the old cover of this thing it's bizarre it's like you know paul granger was the artist who did the covers for all these and it's just this weird kind of knight sort of guy with these weird eyes that glow and a crazy beard and it's just this melange of a kid riding on horseback and a sea serpent another buddy and in, in some other guy in, in, in a cave and you're like what the heck is going on and choose your own adventure books are real simple it's like you picked it up and you read it and, and it's like you are walking along in the forest one day having having a wonderful picnic and suddenly you spy in the distance a cave you decide to go into the cave and you're like oh the cave feels weird and foreboding do you go deeper into the cave <laughs> choose page five do you light a match and see what's going on here? And stick Choose your finger in it so you can go back if you have to. Yeah, and then go to page four. And you're like, okay, and it's, this, it's this, and this branching narrative, right? And a lot of times that, you know, it just, <laughs> when you're reading, the, the narratives not give you sufficient clues to choose wisely right. and sometimes you can be like well it makes sense to go right it's like ah but you walk into an ancient trap set there by you know the time lord and you are killed like oh whoa wait a minute the end the like, end oh man how did i how did the story end in page eight that sucks i'm gonna start over again you start reading again right so fun they're so incredibly good this kind of launched a whole series of books it's still going on today actually choose your own adventure is still a thing the old books are still in print they bring them up they're still doing new books it's absolutely fantastic i read them kind of like it was my job up until about book 25 or six or so uh <laughs> at, which, at which point i kind of i was kind of i was kind of like growing out of it a little bit and then there was one that kind of that kind of harkened back to a previous title, and it was like War with the Evil Power Master. It was like number like 37, and I had like let like a 12 of them go. And I'm like, I remember thinking, I was like a teenager. I'm like, oh, I got to pick this up anyway. So like, all right, Montgomery, man, I love this guy. I pick it up, you know, because he, he like Edward Packard and Montgomery were like the two heavyweights. They kept paying back Estes. and forth, right? 
for the win. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just love these books so freaking much. I read them so constantly, and I'll just go back to them all the time. You know, I was just I, I had this big library of them, and th this is a series where I kept my books from childhood, held on to them because I was like, one day I will have children, and when I do, if I give them one thing, I want to give them my choose your own adventure books. And finally, I gave my set to Connor. He actually read them and really loved them. But, of course, they were cheap paperbacks from the early, late 70s and early 80s. So the paper was not so great. The binding fell apart. So he read them and they literally fell apart. He read them to so pieces. He yeah. read them to pieces. So There's a lot of flipping back and forth. It's to be expected. You know? It really yeah. is. I mean, it's asking a lot of a paperback glue <laughs> binding, to be, to be fair, right? With your thumb where you came from. Yeah, yeah, right. Dude, I would read it with like my fingers and like nine different thatches of pages. Like, I got to go back. But those books have all ascended to Book Valhalla, and I'm okay with that because they've been read to pieces. That's the way a that book should point. go. That was their whole experience. Yeah. Choose your own adventure books. They were actually my gateway into things like Dungeons and Dragons and role playing oh, and into yeah. writing in general. I'm going to cut it off there because I could spend a whole hour geeking out about Choose your own adventure. But Cave of Time was the first one. It was not probably my favorite one. My favorite one. Journey Under the Sea was a really good one. Balloon by the Sahara was a real favorite by one-shot author Douglas Terman, right? But Balloon by the Sahara was freaking great. Space and Beyond was oh, fantastic. Mystery of Chimney Rock was like a, a like a, a, a cool haunted mansion one. That was really pretty awesome. There are a whole bunch of others. I will say this. One thing I think is funny, if you're a fan of the movie Knives Out, it's worth noting that Choose Your Own Adventure number nine is who is a mystery called Who Killed Harlow Thromby? So you know Harlan Thromby, it, the, the, the murder victim in that nice. movie, is totally, is totally referring back to Choose Your Own Adventure, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> but later on, there were two that I absolutely really, as I got older, I really freaking loved. And this actually gets a little bit beyond the 12-year-old limit we're talking about. Uh, but The Race Forever oh, by R.A. Montgomery, favorite. where you're like, it's, it's like an overland, like Dakar road rally kind of thing. Whoo! That one was endlessly awesome. And there's another one called Escape, where you're trying to get out of like a authoritarian United States and become like a police state. You're trying to get the heck out of there. Those were really, they grabbed me hard. But Choose Your Own Adventure, I will ride or die on that one till the end of my life. So oh, I'll open it up for comment from there. Always choose the sob is, is the key to that book. Yeah, um, right? For real. <laughs> Land Rover will get you killed in that one, honestly. I, I yeah, I. I I was the guy who rooted for R.A. Montgomery <laughs> to, the, to the point where like in our elementary school, we were like really big on inviting authors in to come speak. And the choose your own adventure thing was just so hot in like fourth grade, fifth grade. Massive. That, like, you know, clearly, you know, I was one of the top readers in my class. And so I had the ear of my teacher and I'm like, we got to see if we can get Ray Montgomery to come in. And uh, they got him. The guy Wait, hold it, stop. My class. He Ray Montgomery what? came to my class and uh it was he talked all about, you know, all his books and uh you know, I I got signed copies, you know, like it was just like Dude, a, shut the fuck up. That's impossible. That came true for me. So he's in he's describing, you know, his life. So like Ray Montgomery was like a real life adventurer, okay? He like he lived a lot of this stuff that are in his that's in his books. You don't read <laughs> He did sword fights, he ran across tight ropes, he piloted well, airplanes. He that, but he was a big outdoorsman and he was big into yeah, right. particularly skiing yeah. and you know just like outdoorsy yeah. kind of adventures. So oh, he's man. talking all about this in um, my class, and he starts to talk about his mentor. 
And his mentor, he says, is a guy by the name of Roland Palmetto. And I'm like, wow, that's really odd. That's my uncle's name. And we do all this kind of like weird sort of like, you know, hey, how do you, it turns out he was really good friends with my uncle's grandfather, who was Dude. the real deal. <laughs> Stop the presses. He Hold on. was one of the founders of the Ski Patrol. This guy the- you know, that was his mentor, uh, Roland Palmetto. He um, you know, carved the trails at Mad River. This is off the rails. It's a off the rails story. I know, I know. But like, I got to relate my R.A. Montgomery story. And uh, yeah, so like we go and backtrack and figure out that this is my uncle, you know, who married my, my mom's sister. Like, that's his grandfather that he was really good friends with. So like we had to like do this bonding thing over like family history and how he knew my uncle's grandfather. And yeah, it was right. just raising my glasses. Really amazing. <laughs> Terrific time with it. I got and, nothing. And, and, and by the way, just for extra credit, we should all be, while we're all goggling over this, let's just let's just not forget. Like, I want to go back to the moment in that classroom when young Tom has to be like, oh, wait a minute. I think that's my uncle or whatever. Every other kid in that room is just blown yeah. off the floor at this point. It's like, this is now purely crap. Yeah, like, yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, all yeah, Ari okay, Montgomery and Tom Hespos alone. It's a one on one. It's a inside the actor's studio with Ari Montgomery. <laughs> I mean, no. if, you, if you've never read the guy's Wikipedia entry, go back and read it. It's, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, he first ran into, you know, my uncle's uh, relative with doing the Williams School Outing Club. He found that himself in Bad River Glen. Where, I was going to say know, something, but now I'm not going to. He had Holy car- crap, where, you know, my uncle's grandfather had carved, literally carved the trails. And uh, they became fast friends and, uh, you know, went on a number of adventures together. And he was just... He was both weirded out and 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 completely amazed that like somebody in his class that he wow. was lecturing to was related to right. that guy. Okay, so so Tom, I have to ask you a question or two here. I gotta collect myself here. Right. Be professional. What? Right. Yeah, right. Um so so here's the here's the big question. I don't mean to be cruel or anything. Is R. A. Montgomery still alive? He is not. Um, oh, man. Away. Okay. Oh, seven or yeah. Yeah. So I never thought in a million years I'd be like this many, this this few number of degrees of separation away from this series that has meant so much to me and has altered my life in such meaningful fashion. Mm. Uh, this was not what I expected when we opened up this podcast today. So. Uh. Um, I, I don't have a whole lot. I would have gotten an autograph for you, Bill. But Dude, <laughs> don't don't oh, tempt me with what could have been. Okay, stop that. All right, don't 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 turn Billy, this you into need to turn back to page five and try. Yeah, again. right. Seriously, I need to go back to page five and move to Long Island so I can meet my friend Tom and get a get the you know thing I need. Oh my god, the end. Don't don't turn this into Tardis You just walked into the water weird. Sorry, dude. Yeah, right. So Edward Packard is still alive. He actually wrote this great blog post, like Reflections on Life at 90 Years Old, and it was like remarkably insightful and lucid. I'm like, wow, dude. I actually wrote him an email. I was like, because it's like, you know what? This is an object lesson in if there's somebody who really matters to you, who's done something to you that really, really, really affected you. I know there's a whole thing like don't meet your heroes and all that, but you know what? It's better to take a chance and just reach out to them because we live in an age where you can actually reach out to people and you never know. They may actually get back to you, right? Choose your own adventure, I mean, honestly, it changed my life. I mean, I was so fascinated with that branching narrative, with the notion that a story could go in different directions, that when D&D finally came along, I was like, oh, guys, I'm already ahead of this curve. And I became a professional role, role-playing role writer, you know, and I did things in that that really reverberate my life to this day. 
Um, and a lot of that, I mean, a big chunk of that all goes back to Choose Your Own Adventure. Somebody may look at Choose Your Own Adventure and like, <laughs> it's not it's not Les Miserables or whatever. But you know what? I don't care because it it actually changed my life. That those books changed my life for the better. They really did, you know. And they these things change people in weird ways you don't expect, and you have to you have to honor that. You have to respect that. And that's why I love this range of fiction so, or this range of literature so much because there are grown adults who are willing to put their effort into sending something in front of kids and treating them on an equal level enough that these kids might get something from it that that is not prescribed. And I I absolutely love that about this whole field of stuff, whether it's a series of novels, whether it's a game book. By the way, there are some fantastic D and D level children adventures. Oh, the um, Stephen <sighs> Jackson stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, God, is out of God. control. Bonkers. I came to Choose Your Own Adventure through D&D. I, I was exposed to D&D first. Okay. So to me, Choose Your Own Adventure was always like the the lesser version of what I really wanted. You know? Sure, sure. So I never got as, as far into the Majuda, but I did get a number of them. I, uh, I probably had 10 or 12. <laughs> well, they were the perfect like the price. Steven ja the Steve Jackson sorcery stuff. I don't know if you ever yes. played those. Like, those were phenomenal. I haven't played them, but I have seen them. This model works so well, right? And I've actually seen versions that were not TSR licensed, but basically D&D &D type things where it was choose your adventure, but then it would run you into encounters where you then had to like stop and like roll the encounter to see if you, almost like a solo D&D &D module, right? Where you would you know, fight with the monster, and if you survived, right. then go to page 32. If you die, well, then close the book, you're done, you know, and it's like, there's that too, and nobody had ever done this before, nobody ever had ever given kids this level of agency in their entertainment before, and it was so next level, and their writing was so fantastic, because it was so accessible, the protagonists were often so just neutral, that you relatable. could really see yourself, yeah, so relatable, you could see yourself yeah. in them, and it was, it was fantastic, and they did the research, they, they would bring it to far-flung parts of the world that encourage you to read more about it mystery of the maya like the top got me, secret got, ones right yeah like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, like, oh gosh it was, it was just so fantastic so um the top apartment. that whole thing about the narrative structure like think of what that prepared you for in terms of your thinking like you're in those formative years and you're right sure. so like this branching narrative like, what did that prepare you for that prepared Basic me for computers yeah. like when i got my commodore 64 i was like i know what i'm doing i'm writing a choose your own adventure and like press Heck one yeah if you want to go left press two if you want to go right it prepared you for the World Wide Web when, like, oh yeah, then. all these things together and they, you know, branching narrative, yeah. like that type of thinking. Yeah. I think like we don't give it enough credit just for having introduced that structure yeah. to us and to yeah, think sure. about, you know, writing with infinite possibilities. I mean, yeah. that's very cool. <laughs> oh, well, I know this is a feel-good podcast, and I do love talking about this stuff, and I always feel awesome about this. But honestly, when we are done tonight. And we shut everything off, and I go, I put everything away, and I have to deal with, you know, the quiet moments before I go to bed. I will lament the fact that in Earth 617, Bill lives on Long Island, and he and his buddy Tom are rocking it out with R.A. Montgomery. And on Earth 616, I'm not. So, <laughs> Sorry, there, so the, <laughs> that's okay, dude. I, Tom, thank you for sharing that with me, though. It that makes me happier. It, right? Seriously. That's like, I. it's like panning for gold and suddenly finding, you know, the TARDIS. I mean, I just, I, I don't get it. It's just, so, it's so out of, so out of left field. It's just, God, it's just awesome. I guess the only thing I can say is let's move on to round two. So, boom. Well, Tom, 
You get what else to you got? Blow me to smithereens twice in a row. What's your next choice, pal? Uh, I gotta go with uh, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. And oh Judy, yes, Judy, Judy Bloom in general. Judy, Judy yeah, in JB. General. Oh, God, OG. So yes, absolutely. I love Tales of a Fourth Grade, and that is still yeah. a book that they have the kids read. Yes, like, I remember going into Thomas's classroom, uh, like when he was in, I think it was fourth grade. Yeah. And, you know, his teacher was going over all the books they were going to read. And, you know, like yeah. a bunch of the adults got disinterested. And, you know, I ended up talking to the teacher and she's like, yeah, we're going to go through Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. I'm like, oh, I love that book so much. I'm like, where are you yeah. going to that? You going Super Fudge or what? And she's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Super Fudge. Fudge. And I'm like, it's the sequel to Tales it's of a sequel Fudge. Duh. Yeah, right. You Super Fudge. Just, Duh. Like, you do not know this book. You get a peel like, the mm. I'm like, <laughs> how many kids in the class? She's like 26. I got on Amazon. I bought 26 copies of Super Fudge. I have them sent to my house. And I brought them in with Thomas. I'm like, here you go. Take <laughs> Next two reading buddies. after Tom that. Tom freaking Hespos. <laughs> Round Let's one, he's a celebrity. Round two, he's a goddamn superhero. I don't, oh, man. Somebody not, give that not man all a cape. Wear capes. So much. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> wow. This you super much an entire class of kids. I, 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 what do I do with my life? <laughs> That's fantastic. Peter in New York City, like I just identified yeah. with him so much, and he had like the younger brother who would just terrorize him all the time, yeah. like got all the attention and everything. Yeah, I was a kid, you know, who had a younger sister, and it seemed like you know when I was reading this book, she was getting all the attention because she was the baby, yeah. and it was just like the the understanding that just came out of that book. You know, like yeah. Judy Bloom does such just a great job of that. Like oh, you really God. need to. Uh, you know, talk to, talk about oh, her as one oh. of the greatest children's authors. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, Blubber. Blubber. Uh, a Morse. Tigerize. Like, I mean. No, Ramona. I mean, hold the on, Ramona like, book. Ramona. Oh, Ramona. are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Yeah, like, right. Yeah. For, a boy, for a boy to read that at like 10, 11, 12 years old and read about like menstruation and read about like the amount of understanding that that brought to guys of our vintage, it, it can't be over. All, all, all of it. I went to a family friend's house one yeah. time and I got stuck, you know, in my, um, you know, playing with a, a couple of girls, you know, around my age that uh, my mom's friends, kids, and they really just bored the heck out of me. So I just started looking around the house for books and I found, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. Whoops. Flopped down right in the living room and started reading it. Yeah. I got about 20 pages in and my aunt comes, or, you know, my, my mom's friend comes in and says, my daughters really don't want you reading that book. And I'm like, well, why not? And they're like, well, it discusses like girl things and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm 20 pages in and I already started. Here. So sorry. And I just finished yeah, the whole right. book I, I, in I, their living room. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm doing yeah. it, man. I get yeah. so freaking angry. The best part is the kid's got like the binoculars. He's like the original gangster stalker. And yeah. like he finds out more than he ever wanted to know. Yeah. But that's yeah. all of us. That's us. You got to understand, like, for a pre internet generation. That, yes. <laughs> Information to, was compartmentalized. Information about right? growing Absolutely. up, information about puberty, oh, yeah. all that stuff was deeply compartmentalized and not in a good or healthy way. So kids had to go through back channels to learn about basic stuff about their body. And Judy and Bloom said, up. screw that, Bill. She said, she like, here you go. Here it is. Part. No, no. Judy Bloom, honestly, there should be a she's statue. She's still alive. She's like There's 101 years old and she's lucid. Really? Fans, yeah. I, I'm going to write her an email, too. Dear Judy Let's Bloom, right you're now. the best. Love, <laughs> no Let's call her right now. 
This car right now. <laughs> you guys like, know it's 10 o'clock in the evening, right? <laughs> she, came, she came down, like, you know, like Mel Brooks with like a history of the world where like <laughs> Moses comes down with like, I bring you 15, and he drops the 10. 10, 10, 10, 10 commandments. Like, that's yeah. Judy Bloom as a puberty yeah. story. Yeah. She brings the God. stone tablets down from Mount yeah. Ararat or wherever and says, yeah. Here, understand each other, please. I was trying to explain to my wife why I read Are You There, Guys, Me, Margaret at the time. And she goes, that was really kind of like a girl sling. I'm like, you're right. However, Judy Bloom was so real and so accessible and so just telling it to you straight and adult telling kids what they needed to know. And that just didn't happen a whole heck of a lot. The very best of this kind of literature did that. And Judy Bloom was a master at it. And she had- She, she didn't she was, you over she, the head? And yet, no. like, uh, she, blubber and bullying? Oh my God. At a time when nobody up. was talking about that. Nobody was talking about bullying Blubber, in the seventies. Yeah, you're right. And she threw that down and said, <sighs> "Here's a story that invites you to understand it from the point of view of the of the bully." I, I will tell you something. Blubber changed my life. Blubber, it's unbelievable. When I read no, no, when I read Blubber, I had bullied a classmate of mine terribly. Okay, he was a weak kid, and I was able to bully him, and I did it a lot. And I read Blubber, and. My, I was blown to smithereens by Blubber. It is a mo it is a more searing indictment of the psychology of bullying you're not likely to find. And I saw that, and I was like, I will never bully somebody ever again in my life. And I actually went back, and I made amends with the kid for bullying him. I'm like, I see what I've done. I'm sorry. And I'm like, it's not like I'm a saint for apologizing. I should never have done it in the first place. The point is, Judy Bloom gave me the knowledge I needed to yes. become a better person and to stop doing something that was evil to somebody. And she was just, you were just dropping like Johnny Appleseed. Here you yes. go. A whole Her capacity to enter the juvenile mind and say, I get yeah. you, and here's where you are. The and book here's you can read yeah. two hours. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Tom, it's I am unbelievable. So, I am she, so she glad you dropped her name. Absolute uh, no. treasure. An absolute national treasure. And one day she will decide to, to level up and graduate out of the mortal coil. And when she does, it'll be interesting to see the massive phalanx of people who will come forth and talk about how she has changed their life, how she's changed other people's lives, how she has inspired people to do likewise. And she did a lot for the children's publishing industry. She yes. did a lot for just children's psychology. She's like this quiet lever that did so much to impact so many lives. Tom, I'm, I, I'm really deeply grateful you mentioned Judy Bloom. I was hoping somebody would. Kudos to you for kicking off round two. Uh, your game is on tight tonight, man. I got to tell you. <laughs> but Judy Bloom, holy crap. Yes, absolutely. They're Tales just fantastic. Tom Hespos, everything. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Moving along. So, Joe, what have you got for round two? Uh, Bill, you mentioned earlier, like, uh, some of these books, some of these authors, there's going to be stuff that's problematic about it. And, yeah. And, um, uh, the one I want to talk about is uh, The Indian in the Cupboard. Oh, which, Okay. One of my absolute favorite books to read when I was a kid. And, and there are sequels to it that are not this good. But The Indian in the Cupboard is this book about a kid who finds an old cabinet in the street. And yeah. he brings it home and he puts, and he's like, oh, this is cool. I can put my little toys in it. And he puts it in his room and he puts a little plastic Indian in it. And the next morning he wakes up and the Indian's alive. It's almost like a proto Toy Story kind of a motif where his right. toys come to life. And this captured my imagination as a child in a way in which nothing ever, nothing else really did. Where yeah. he put a cowboy in and the cowboy and the, the Indian fought each other and they became friends. And he put a horse in and the horse came alive and a little fire and the fire came up and he had to put it out. And this was like this 10-year-old kid who had to grapple with the reality of 
his power over life and death and reality and all this stuff. Yeah. And I mentioned it being problematic because there's some stuff that's stereotypical about the representation of, of indigenous peoples in it. And, and yeah. no question about that. It really brought to life for me as a young 10, 11, 12 year old, the power you had over your toys and the power of creation over your toys mm. and the power to write their narrative and yet yeah. look at it from the agency of your toys and the fact yeah. that they had like dreams and wants and needs of their own. And, and this book captures it in a really special way. And um, he starts to think about like, I've got to find him a girl. I've got to let him go eventually at the end of it. And, it, and it's a really important narrative arc for Omri, the protagonist, to grow up. And I think for a lot of these books we're talking about, it's us wrestling with these concepts of like, how do I move beyond childhood into adolescence and beyond? And sure. talking about responsibility and accountability and a lot of these sorts of things. Because when you're a little kid, mom and dad are always there, you do your thing and whatever. But then you start to like do stuff where you have to be accountable for the consequences of your actions. And, and we talked about Judy Bloom being so good at that. One of the things about the Indian in the cupboard is that it really brings into sharp relief that that concept of I'm responsible for things that happen and my play has consequences. Yeah. I really, I really, really loved it when I was a kid. Now, the Indian in the cupboard is written by who? Lynn Reed Banks. She's an English writer. Yeah. And I also remember being a kid and encountering words like Lori or biscuit, like, you know, Lori for talking, biscuit <laughs> yeah, for cookie, sure. and being like, what are we talking about? What is this? Yeah, this is like 1986. There's no yeah. internet to go to to be like, oh, yeah. please give me an English to English dictionary. There's so much to it that is, mm -hmm. is really textured. I absolutely dug it the most. I never read it, but I did remember seeing the trailer for the movie, and it was the first time I saw a movie attempt to do multi-property licensing. So basically, they, they show the cover at one point, there's like RoboCop and like Darth Vader in the same like, you know, thing. And it's like, you can do that? Like, it just blew my mind. Like, what the, what the, you know, just couldn't, couldn't get it. It was just from the studio that brought you. Yeah. yeah, it brought you everything, everything. So very cool. All right. Uh, Chris, what have you got for round two? Do you remember the Moby books? Or they might have been sold in your area under the name Little Big Books. These were like four and a quarter inch tall by, you know, three and a half inch wide versions of classics, you know, of, of Moby Dick, of The Count of Monte Cristo, Oliver Twist, and David Copperfield, Tom Sawyer. Look and at Crenshaw bringing the friggin' erudition. No, this, well, yes, yeah, sort, <laughs> sort of. I'm reading, I'm reading Bronson. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Know. Yeah, the, Little Women was one of them. And uh, yeah, like, like yeah. all of, yeah. They, they were... <laughs> This explains so much about they Chris. He was, really, he was, he was rocking no. Bronte at age six. Like, <laughs> like one, oh. I'm like running around the woods hitting a frog with a stick, and Chris is like, oh, Condom Monte Cristo is not exactly <laughs> Millville, but I suppose I'll read it today while I have my crustables. Just a yeah. fun Bill adventure tale, I suppose. Chris is saying Dumas. <laughs> Dumas. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry, Chris. Go ahead. I mean, yeah, like on. <laughs> on one on the left on the left side, you know, every time you you open the book, on the left side was text, and on the right side was an illustration of what was going on in the text. So, like, they had pretty decent comic artists doing like single panel illustrations for every other page in these novels. The distillation of of the text, you know, down to like kid yeah. size was honestly just great. You know, it, it gave me yeah. an understanding of so many 
stories, so many really important cultural stories that, you know, I, I otherwise wouldn't have gotten because, you know, who's got time to go read The yeah. Count of Monte Cristo? At the classic point? comics are for. Well, well, my yeah. father got through high school, dude. Classics Illustrated. Yep. Much but respect. Yeah. But, but but this sounds like it's, it's in that same vein. And I got to say, one of the great things about like what you're talking about, Chris, like, like books like, like Mobile Books, and I, me- I don't recall reading them, but I remember hearing about them. I don't know if you guys struggled with this. I certainly did. The notion of like an older book, like having been published many years before, was just instantly discounted as irrelevant because it's, it's just old stuff. It's crusty. It couldn't possibly be interesting to me, even though there are books in that realm that I would later like devour avidly, right? But these distillations of things that kind of remind you as a kid, like these stories are great. They're great because they persist because they're so great and they're still relevant. And let's break it down to a, into a version you can get and then take it from there. They really are fantastic books, Bill. Um, I, I am a Moby Dick fan because of the Moby book version. The Moby Moby, if you will. Yeah, the illustration of Queequeg and his coffin really just okay. landed and, and stuck in my, in my soul. I'm going to stop for a second and put a pin in what you just said, Chris, because... Not everybody out in the, there in the world knows how deep of a Moby Dick fan you are. <laughs> Chris, just really quick, give us four points of evidence that shows how deep of a Moby Dick fan you really are. My first tattoo, which covers my right upper arm, is it's a, it's a toggle bolt harpoon uh, sort of rising out of the ocean. And underneath it says Tommy Crenshaw. <laughs> hey, I've seen that ink. And it looks fantastic, by the way. I was, that was kind of a trick question. <laughs> All right, point number two. Point number two. Uh, I, I I started with a Moby book. That's point number two. Point number three. <laughs> point number three. As a high school senior, my or a junior in American Lit, my term paper was Moby Dick. Point number four. I wrote my honors thesis uh, in college on. Uh, I knew it. Yes. Uh, he lives in downtown Melville. Uh, I watched you write it, dude. You had this massive Melville library, like deep cuts of Melville, yeah. like. Melville's letters to his, his second mom. favorite book is Billy Budd. <laughs> I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that Moby Dick is deeply meaningful to you. I, like I know just as an observer how much it means to you. It means she, Moby Dick is to you what like the Arthurian legends are to me. They go to the taproot. They're that deep. A, a simple distillation of it when you're a kid. That's the importance of these yeah. things. It opens doors to kids to experience something in a much greater version of it in a much deeper way. Like you can't knock the version they made for kids because they opened you up to that. That's a great thing. Day, you won't share strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and really what better possible way could there be to digest Dickens than, you know, a, a picture on every other page. I, mean, I, I may go back and read Dickens like that. That may be my, that may be my preferred way of reading Dickens. Let's be honest. Dickens could stand an editor that oh, yeah. half of his stuff. Yeah, that man was selling by the Let's word. No doubt about it. Yeah, honestly, I would be inclined to read Dickens in children's format just to make sure I get the get it covered. And then it's like bucket list item checked off. Red to read Dickens. Dickens at all. Yeah, done. done. You know. Do you think of a better gateway drug though? I mean, come on, right? Like, what if we hadn't had those books? Like, would you have right. become a Moby Dick fan? Would, I do know? not know that Seriously. I would have. No. Yeah, you know. Like, I have a bunch of leather-bound copies of, you know, stuff on my parents' bookshelf that, like, I knew were classics, and I never got to them because I just didn't have the gateway, you know. Jane Eyre. Yeah, exactly. Like, right. You exactly. never get to all those books on your parents' bookshelf. Like, I didn't. Exactly. Like, Exactly. It's nice that your parents had bookshelves. (laughs) (laughs) 
Damn. Sorry. <laughs> White privilege. Hey, my up mom in here. was a big reader, you know, like she still reads something every day. So. So my choice for round two is going to be this massive tome, the Smithsonian Collection of Newspaper Comics. I have mentioned this book Look before. Look at Bill reading pictures. I, dude, I will <laughs> mention this one again. This one just absolutely blew me to smithereens. This is a book. It was produced in, I think, 1977. My grandparents got me for this because they knew I was starting to get into comics, and I was a big reader. And like, oh, you might like this, you know. And, and it's funny because like they got it because they saw comics that they knew as a kid in this sort of thing, and they got it to me. And it's, a, it's like a, you know, it's a pretty – massive oversized book it's like you know it's like it's like 330 awesome. pages long it's a quick survey of the history of newspaper comics from the very beginning up until like the early the early 1970s right and it sort of has these essays on like the different eras here's a quick glimpse of all the major strips that really mattered over time right so here's a quick here's a couple strips of the cats and yammer kids and here's some little nemo and slumberland and here's this here's that and a couple of them they actually gave like entire story arcs so there's like there's like an entire story arc of terry and the pirates there's an entire story arc of mickey mouse you know the entire story arc of popeye and thimble theater these are all from like the 20s and 30s that sort of thing and what amazed me about this book, I just I read this book again and again and again and again on my bed at night after I've been tucked into bed. I just read this book endlessly. It was this glimpse into this past that I just couldn't understand. And I, just, I felt like it was like almost like archaeology. Like I got to see this humor from an age I didn't really connect with. And I was trying to understand why was it funny. And it just it was so it fascinating to me. It was so entertaining to me. I read this book cover to cover more times than I can count. I actually read my early copy. It was a paperback copy to pieces. Thankfully, due to the miracle of eBay, I was able to find a, a, a hardback copy for like 15 bucks, And I was like, I have to have this copy in my library. My lifelong love of comics and of graphic you know, literature really stems from my introduction to this book. The comics in it were just fantastic to read. They had a huge impact on me. It's kind of an obscure book. Not a lot of people really know about it. It's deeply out of print. However... If you look for it on archive.org, you can find a PDF there, and you can find plenty of copies on the secondhand market. The one thing I will say about this book that I've learned since I read it as a kid, this book goes up to, it stops right as all the comics I was currently reading at the time as a kid started. It's definitely dated. It only goes up to a certain period of time, right? What's really cool about it is the history of it. It was edited by a guy named Bill Blackbeard, and Bill Blackbeard was this dude who was obsessed with newspaper comics at a time when the newspapers themselves did not see any value in them and when the syndicates who created them did not see any value in them. So he was on a one-man crusade, an obsessive crusade, to archive all the newspaper comics he possibly could before they were completely destroyed off the face of the planet. And he created this massive personal archive of comics that was so it was so big it became the archive for newspaper comics. And Bill Blackbeard kind of single-handedly, well, not single, he had a team, he brought on people to kind of help, you know, kind of grab things. But basically, he sort of single-handedly saved the new, the American newspaper comic from being relegated to history as just as a forgotten thing. We now can see what were people laughing at, you know, on the Sunday funnies uh, in 1927. Well, thanks to Bill Blackbeard, we know. You've talked about this book so many times, Bill, and it's so great. Like, I love the story behind it of the archivist. And like now, you know, we're we're sort of amateur archivists ourselves trying to- Yeah, data hoarders. To, uh, to, you know, data and, and, and art that, you know, seems to fall out of, you know, the it's in the public domain, but it just yeah, falls yeah. out and then, you know, we never see it again. Like, 
the notion that that could have happened to newspaper comics is just like unfathomable to me. And it's like this one guy's yeah. work that saved it. I mean, we would have lost all of that had it not yeah. been for him. And, and oh my God, like what a loss that would have been. He ultimately donated his entire collection. And you could probably do a movie about this guy. He he had his whole house in California was basically filled with this collection of like just newspaper clippings, right? And because it turns out as newspapers are going to microfilm, he was going to local libraries who were trying to get rid of the newspaper copies. Like, we're just going to throw them away. He's like, can you give them to me? Sure you can. And then he would go through and he would physically clip out all the comics and photograph them and, and hang on to them. It got to a point where his house was so full he couldn't hold on to it anymore. And finally, he donated the entire thing to the University of Illinois, I think Bloomington. There's a there's a cartoon museum there. That's where like Calvin Hobbes is enshrined, that sort of thing. And he he finally, when he donated the whole collection there, it took like four semi trailers to load his collection to this university. It was like that. It's like that. And like my interim manager is like, oh my god, these four trucks on that overland trip. Like so much value is at risk right then and there. Anything could have happened. It's all newspaper. It's gonna burn at the first sign of a hot fart. You know, like this. Could, There's gonna be a leak. It could just go. Yeah, anything could happen. It's gonna. Ha- it's. Oh my god. You know. But anyway. So, but yeah. But this book is this book is a real treasure to me on a number of number of occasions. But it hit me at when I was a young kid. It came out at seventy seven. I was like ten years old when I got it, and it completely uh, blew me away and shaped a lot of how I look at a lot of things. When I was in college, my mom came back from an antique store. My mom is much like me. Uh, I get my astonishingly short attention span from her. She she brought home bound editions of I think the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yes, that's what Blackbeard was working off of, right? You know, bounded the bound editions. They uh, yeah, these are like you know they're like an unfolded newspaper size <laughs> yeah, book. They're huge. Um, like they're they're uh, yeah like like two and a half feet yeah. by you know twenty inches. And, you know, you open them up and you're just, you know, essentially reading through newspapers. And I, I mean, you know, didn't have a lot of interest in, in going through like the, the local news or even the national news of the time, but I did go through and read the comic strips. It, it did give me an appreciation, like you say, for just, uh, you know, an entirely different form yeah. of humor from an entirely, entirely different time. Yeah that was difficult to relate to but worth the effort yes yeah that's exactly that's exactly where it landed with me too difficult to relate to but worth the effort and i'm so glad i did moving on to round three tom what have you got for us for round three uh blanche knots truly tasteless jokes no i'm kidding Uh, (laughs) i had it i'm sorry that's not my um, Holy crap! So no, not expecting this. No, I'm oh my god! I'm going with Harriet the Spy. Um, <laughs> no, are you? It's you. Wait a minute! Stop for a second. Are you you pulling a U-turn on me? Are you yes, serious, Tom? <laughs> Tom, the emotional quotient on this issue that I'm getting from the Hesposphere right now is just too much. All right, go ahead with Harriet the Spy. I was so thinking I was going to get a master class like in Taylor's joke. Spy. Who doesn't like Harriet the Spy? I never read... All, oh. I, okay, this explains much about me. I've never read Harriet the Spy, okay? But I have read Truly Taylor's Jokes Volumes 1, 2, right. and 3, okay? We're not talking Same. about that, no. Absolutely not. Um, all right, talking about Harriet the Spy, whatever, the floor is yours. I love the story, all right? So I got things about books from, uh, you know, people living in New York. And Harriet the Spy is basically about a little girl living in on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. She has uh, basically absentee parents that let her kind of roam around all over the place and a nanny. 
the nanny leaves her and, and, you know, there's a whole uh, emotional crescendo going on there. But the thing that really affected me uh, personally about Harriet the Spy, Harriet the Spy basically walks around and writes in a little journal uh, doing basically, you know, like what I would have called in my adulthood people watching. And okay. so she okay. writes down like a lot of kind of like personal details about people and, you know, kids in her class and stuff like that. And there's a point at which, you know, everybody reads the journal and reads like the highly personal things that she's written about them. And what that did for me was it taught me, you know, we, I, I was doing a lot of creative writing at that age, you know, mm -hmm. like in, in fourth and fifth grade when I read this book and, you know, did end up writing some like really nasty stories about people. Uh, that I knew and it really just taught me a lesson about like hey you know like your words when you write can really hurt people at different yeah. points and you know especially other kids and you know to to always be respectful of that and not to uh, ever abuse that because you know I, I'm sure I did you know my share of bullying sometimes with some of the stories I would write and read to the class so um, you know that just taught me a, a lesson about that that I sort of carried with me forever. So I, I love Bill, the story, and I ended Bill up. Coffin is such a jerk; he will not stop talking about R. A. Montgomery. The end. Signed, Tom Hespos. <laughs> Cut it out, man. Um, <laughs> I ended up living in the neighborhood where um, you know Harriet the Spy takes place for. Oh about come on! Years. On the Upper East Side, you know, like Yorkville. Um, I lived it there turns out that Louise Fitzhugh is your it, aunt or something, right? No, Seriously, no, no, no. Tom is running up the score like so crazy, dude. Little League rules apply, okay? Dunking on everyone. Yeah, a lot of the places the that she talks cover? about, you know, are places that to take still this there, personal. right? <laughs> Chris, I feel you. Tom's real name is Harriet. Tom's Harriet been holding Tom out for like four and a half seasons on this show, and he's like, season five is all about Tom. Watch I this. I have nothing to do. You guys are like, let's do an elementary school bookshelf. I'm like, I'm in. All right. I'm in the Sorry, you get all the Hespos, you get none of the Hespos. That's how it goes. I want, Harry I want all the Spy, 1964. The same that was in the book was still there in the neighborhood that I lived in, and I could kind of think back That's to Harry cool. and Spy yeah. and think about like them describing my neighborhood when I was like a little kid, and then you know coming back to it later in life, which was which was really you know my 30s, which was really interesting and fun. Yeah, you should have seen Tom when he was a mouse and rode a motorcycle. It was really something. <laughs> well, helmet, that dude bit. went up on Ben Franklin's kite. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so, no, no, that's super cool though, Tom. Seriously, that that, that, is, that is really super cool. I, I Harriet the Spy is one of those um kind of tentpole literature things of kind of the the young publishing set that I, I just never I just never came across. Like I never saw. I, like I learned about it when I was growing up, right? So I knew it was a thing, yeah. but I never came across it. So it's kind of and I knew this was going to happen this episode. Like people are going to raise things that were important to them and were big. And I know are, are just are objectively just really big, but just my little you know keyhole view of the world when I was a kid, I only saw so many things, right? So I knew I was going to miss important things. And Harriet the Spy is definitely one of the things that just it went right by me. I just missed it entirely. So I'm kind of glad you brought it up. because I, I missed that third E.B. White book too. I mean, something about it sounds vaguely familiar, but... <laughs> but of the Swan, baby, go read it. It's I funny actually, that we I had very, very similar childhoods 
And yet there's such a diverse, like there's all these other like movies and TV like instantly connect on like some of these, like not all of us have read or have heard of. And it's it's kind of interesting. But once again, though, it's a a lot more books than movies. But it's also a good point to point out that like, like the children's publishing industry should not, you don't discount it because it's like the, the one of the reasons why they put out so many different things is because not every kid is going to see everything. And a lot of these, a lot of the best in class kind of stuff is only going to make like an impact on so many kids. And kids are reading so much, you can you can hit a lot. So it's, it's no, I, I get it. I get it. So Joe, what have you got for, for the next round? I think we have to tackle Roald Dahl. We have to talk about <sighs> Games in the Giant Peach. We have to talk about uh, BFG, yeah. we have to talk about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And, and for me, uh, in the entirety of, of uh, Roald Dahl, uh, James and the Giant Peach is my favorite. It's my absolute Mine favorite. Too. I, I, I love Absolutely. his capacity for whimsy and and yet... Meanness. Oh, so awful. <laughs> so mean. He adults, so mean. <laughs> he adults as these horrible creatures. Yeah. And, and, and whenever I've written in my own life, and I, I really, I feel like it hurts me to write characters in any way that's like dismissive or makes them bad people. And I always go back yeah. to Doll and Doll was unafraid to draw characters as horrific human beings. And <laughs> seriously, he had no problems that with this at all. <laughs> there's, there's a meme out there. That that, that man fought Nazis. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he knew mean. <laughs> <laughs> evil and was unafraid to make it into an aunt right yeah like, right that's, that's pretty much doll but like there's a meme out there that says like oh okay so you made this book about a huge giant that's cool you made a meme about like what was it like the some other huge thing like i'm gonna write a book about a peach like is it big oh it's huge <laughs> it's, <laughs> right? freaking like, huge. it's freaking huge freaking like, huge but like he, he had this way and I, I i hearken it back anything that speaks to children is about how to lift them out of the banal ordinariness of the world in which they inhabit. Like Harry Potter does that. Yeah. Narnia does that. To let them see it better. Yeah. And like lift you into, take you into another place of of fantasy and allows you to look back at the world that you came from and understand it better. Yeah. And to me, the book in which he does that the best is James and the Giant Peach. Like he he takes them into this this big, this enormous fruit and (laughs) he meets these bugs who live in the fruit who are just these interesting characters who help him to understand the human condition better they've all got their own needs yes they're peccadillos and everything yeah. else yeah. and he he's he's a brilliant observer of the human condition and bfg does that james the giant peace charlie and chocolate the witches like all of that his his capacity for boiling down the human condition into sometimes stereotypes and sometimes accurate send-ups of, of characters uh, is something as a child that's very accessible and I, I just I, I just always found very very brilliant and, and yeah. really funny I think it was a lot of American readers first introduction to British wit you know and, and you know, like that dry English humor you're like oh boy your grandma might not have found a, found a lot of those jokes yeah, funny, right. you know <laughs> I've only read two Roald Dahl novels and it was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator and I remember reading the Great Glass Elevator and like that book gets harsh. Like it's people, messed up. That's it's a messed, messed up. up. And I remember like reading it like, well, like that book helped redefine the rules for me. Like, oh wait a minute, you can actually do these things in a story. You know, um, it doesn't have to be at all safe. It can be legitimately weird 
and sinister and you know an actual sense of dire peril and i was like wow okay and i, I learned that from Roald doll but doll also goes to this place of like not every thing requires redemption and sometimes the rejection <laughs> of redemption is awesome like the aunts and james and the giant peach there's no redemption for them you roll them over with a peach the hell with them like like <laughs> sometimes evil gets punished to, to chris's point he fought nazis <laughs> right and he ain't having it and sometimes he's just like yeah they're terrible let's let's just get rid yeah. of those people in yeah, a yeah. juicy yeah yeah so oh man all right grandpa uh, joe man he found his energy when that golden ticket fell out huh? right seriously grandpa dude's joe. on dude's on permanent disability until the golden ticket it. arrives that's grandpa joe he's laying there and he's like no i can't get up out of what Parentifying Charlie like the son of a bitch. tour of a chocolate factory. Let's do it. Let's do this. Hang on. I got five more years of me. I'm going to burn them all right now. Let's go. Leroy Jenkins. And is that not like the most, hold on. You, you mentioned Bill, like the, the, the inherent Britishness of it. Like yeah, Ricky Gervais and the, and the British version of the office. And yeah. then they were going to make it for American television. Uh, Ricky Gervais came to him and said, listen, Part of the, the charm or the basis of the British version of The Office is that this, these people are, are, are terrible at what they do. And that isn't going to play in America. Like people aren't going to watch a show about people who are bad at their jobs because that doesn't, that just, that doesn't, play, that doesn't make sense to an American audience. Yeah. In, in England, you could be bad at your job and stay in it for 40 years. In, in America, you're bad at your job. You're not going to stay in it for four years. So you've got to like give these people some redeeming qualities yeah. about how they're actually kind of okay at their jobs. So yeah. James and the Giant Peach, like, or or uh, to your point, like uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Here are these four like grandparents who are probably in like their early fifties. They're not that old, and they're like already <laughs> in bed for the rest of their lives. I never thought about that. I always thought they must be in their nineties. No, you're Which right. Resonates- they're probably- they're like it my age right now. It resonates with the British audience who understand the welfare state in a way the American audience just, just absolutely wouldn't. And it's just it's brilliantly wonderful. I'm now waking up to the notion that I could, in fact, be lying in bed all day long and just waiting for Connor to find <laughs> some lottery ticket to get me out of my bed again. <laughs> Thanks, Roald. You're the man. All right. Uh, Chris, what do you have for round three? Okay, so look, I, I started reading really early. Mostly Re- Jane Eyre. Reportedly, no, no. Reportedly, Joe, you'll appreciate this. I, I learned I learned to read from the newspaper. I would sit on my dad's lap, and and just one day when I was three, I started saying one word after another, you know, reading yeah. off the page. But the first books I remember reading, Encyclopedia Brown. Oh snap! And yeah, Encyclopedia Brown was great. Um, you know, it, 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 good call. Again, they make you feel smart. You know, they're they're these just short little sharp stories. Yeah. You know, five or seven to a book. Many um, mysteries. Yeah. And or so le- up to thirteen, I think. But so you know, good. it would give you details, and you would just have to mull over it and spot the the detail that that stuck out that didn't make sense that didn't yeah. fit. And they were great. You know, they encouraged worthwhile sorts of thinking. They had a uh, a strong female character, which was fairly uncommon at the time. Encyclopedia's best friend was was a girl who would help him in every book, uh, especially in the mystery that involved the bully, the neighborhood bully. He kind of led me into what really mattered: the Hardy Boys. Oh, 
I read, I mean, I had so many Hardy Boys books, uh, like those little hardcovers. The, yeah. The blue, oh, yeah. The I, there was like 34,000 of them. Yeah. Yeah, approximately. And I, I don't know, I had I had 40 or, or so. Yeah. Um, and it, what a great series. I, I, I just love that stuff. And if you don't know what Hardy Boys is, it's it's a series of books that started in the 60s. These two boys with a, an absentee rich father. Uh who just sort of turns them loose to solve mysteries. And... They're, they're, they're free-range kids who decided to just go fight crime, is really what it was. They, they're free-range kids with with, with private planes, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and the, the, the Hardy Boys series, of course, uh, birthed um, Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew, um, which is also 34,000 volumes strong. Man. Maybe that, I mean... more, more important a series. Probably, probably, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, 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 when I was talking about this episode. My my wife was like, "Oh, Nancy Drew, honestly, got like she was like so she was." And it's funny that these are series that had like hard hard gender lines. Even though yeah. I read both Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, and for me as a reader, they're fundamentally the same story. They're 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 pretty much they didn't really exactly differ, but it was just like there's so much Nancy Drew, so much Hardy Boys. They're just all so good though. We we had a uh, one year, or well, I guess every year must have done it. Uh, reading marathon competition Ooh. okay in, yeah yeah in elementary school chris was reading thoreau you know. you'd get people to to pledge you know a quarter or a dollar for every book you read and <laughs> joe let me tell you hardy boys books went fast did they i i i, I presented uh people with some really unexpected bills for charity <laughs> bills for charity <laughs> Your Hardy Boy debit is four thousand two hundred and ninety-five dollars. Those are nineteen seventy-nine dollars, by the way. That's Joseph a house. Conrad books just flow right through my hands. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm just imagining eleven-year-old Chris Crenshaw reading Umberto Eco. He's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, Ulysses bothers me still to this day. You know, I didn't understand it when I was nine. <laughs> I was nine, exactly. When I was twelve, when I was twelve, Lord Verdiarist is a young man. Spoke to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I really, I really, I really needed a solid middle school foundation in theology before I could understand uh, the name of the rose. I, I love how this podcast is somehow. <laughs> this podcast of all podcasts is somehow we've now arrived at the point where we're mocking Chris for being smart at a young age. Like that's that's where. We, that's where we've gone. Like, okay. Anyway, <laughs> no, no. Uh, but Party Boy is a fantastic choice, though, Chris. All right. Uh, so my, my my pick for this round is um, I'm gonna go with again more more kind of look at Bill reading pictures uh, after I after I just excoriated Chris for his his erudite his his childhood erudition. What Archie comics, do you have now? Well, it's funny you should ask because I'm gonna pop onto you. How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way by Stan Lee oh, and John Buscema. This right here. No. This hardback. Okay. Look at how they bind it. Okay. Observe the quality. Okay. This is my copy <laughs> from like 1978. I have, Look at the corners, how beaten up they are. This thing rode in my knapsack for like five years solid oh, like in middle school and intermediate. PhD okay. This book was. That nobody ever takes from the library. Yeah, sir. This book will will it's a second a second edition of the indie book. Right, sir. This book will <laughs> never fall apart. It's so well made. The first how to draw book I ever came across was this book, which is Ed Emberley's Make a World, which is a delightful little slim volume, really great for kids. 
it is the sort of thing, it's sort of the notion of like, anybody can draw. And this book is like, all you need to know to draw in this book, everything, and it, it offers like all these pictures, like vehicles and houses and all sort of stuff. It's like to draw all these things, all you need to do is write the letter Y, <laughs> the letter C, the letter V, the number three, you know, do a circle, a square, like all this, it boils down drawing to the most basic elemental kind of things. But it awakens you to the notion like you can actually, as a kid, you can draw anything if you really want to you don't have to have an innate ability to draw this is like the most basic instruction on how to and, and how, how to draw and i was like whoa and then do you send that away to win a contest and get a scholarship to the art school yeah kind of so then i came across how to draw comics the marvel way which some friends of mine were actually they were getting into comics in a huge way this book came out in i think 1978 it is still one of the top manuals. If you want to learn how to draw comics, granted, granted, it's the comics the Marvel way. And by that, they really mean... That means Mar good. Oh, that means good, yes. Marvel does things by a... Or at least they used to. It was a assembly line. Somebody would draw the pencils. Then somebody would lay down the inks on top of it. Then somebody would draw the, put the colors on top of that. And somebody would then letter the whole thing. It was like everybody had their own specific... And then Tom Orzachowski would, would letter it. Right. Or, yeah, ors would just litter the whole thing, right? How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way is this fantastic thing. It's just like, it's a quick introduction to the fundamentals of drawing in terms of like perspe uh, perspective, lighting, shadow, figure drawing, how comic figure drawing varies from regular figure drawing, right? It actually acknowledged that. How to do panel composition, what makes a really dynamic panel look better than a simple static panel. It was all these things. This book was on or near my person like for like five years straight like you know open it up let us see it i want to see it open it up i know this isn't going to be exciting i must have seen 11 chapter five there's thor right there right i had to draw the figure right pow it's fantastic but show us like there's like a process i assume it's like oh look the oval for the head and then like the you know like that kind of stuff right okay so here here's a good picture of like how you can see like 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 the power perspective in a in a, in yes. a panel right so there's the panel as it's printed and there's the panel as it is like in sketch right and see how these things kind of work out and it's it's like that throughout the whole course of the book how do you draw a figure you know you know all these sorts of things here's here is Reed Richards right how you proportion him Sue Richards right and like you know you know here she is and this is John Buscema style right and here's here's how you know how how it all works right and then it's like here are other characters like. Here's why Doctor Doom looks different. Here's how like a normal guy versus Captain America. And then there's things like how you draw guys like the Kingpin, who's like all kind of weird and and like the thing is kind of like he's all messed up. It's just like that all throughout. And it's just this super accessible. I drew for thousands of hours just based off this is this is my guide. I was self-taught off of this book, right? Now I never became a great artist. I did aspire to draw comics for a very long period of time, and get to the point where like I was like actually what I really want to do is tell stories and I hit this point where I'm like you know actually I can tell these stories faster if I type them so this book and 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 the the comics associated with it I absolutely loved occupied a massive portion of my mental bandwidth when I was growing up I cannot overstate how important a role this book played in my becoming a writer professionally you know, I wanted to tell stories I thought I was going to do them by drawing pictures and I got to the point where I just wanted to write them instead. And so this book got me to the point where, like, I like drawing, but what I want to do is tell stories. I don't necessarily want to do them through pictures. I want to do them through words. That's okay. But I still cherish this book. When I go back and I start drawing, I still look back at this book. This book is super relevant even now. It is the... I will still die on this. So is this is the single best book for how to draw comic book type illustration you will ever find ever. Nothing has topped it. It is fantastic. Stanley, John Bushima. Two titans of the industry wrote this at the height of their powers. It's absolutely fantastic. There's not a cynical word in this whole thing. 
It's just, oh, and it's still in print, by the way. You can still buy it, still buy, it, I think, paperback or hard copy. There are PDFs of it everywhere. Go find it. If you want to draw comics, check this book out. There are there are other fantastic books out there on how to draw comics. However, you would be doing a grave disservice to yourself if you did not go back and look at this book and give it very serious attention. How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. I love this book. I, I must have seen 5,000 ads for it in my childhood. <laughs> Stan Lee hawked it pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, that was flogged pretty crazy. And, yeah, and that's he, awesome. he, he flogged the crap out of it. He was not. He was not. Uh, you know, Bill, about it makes it. me. It makes me think honestly. Like what? It, what it uh, brings to mind is um, David McCauley and his stuff. Like the Dude, castle. Bam like, castle. You know, <laughs> <laughs> My man. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking like, about. There you go. Like I mean, come on. You're kidding me, right? Like castle is so good. Ca like, oh my god. Yes. The amount of stuff I either traced or drew looking at or read about on, on like castle, pyramid, <laughs> underground, cathedral, like city, all yeah. of that city, all of that stuff. So good. Unbelievable on just understanding how things are how things come together. Yeah. And I think that's what I thought about when you showed me the the how to draw comics the Marvel way is like concept of composition like because when you're a kid yeah. you're like oh i'm just gonna draw but like no, no no there's there's some sophistication to it and if you, you master gotta put the sun at the top otherwise they don't know the <laughs> sky. Up, up, up in the corner exactly you know yeah exactly but crayon, like yes but there's yeah. there's some there's some artistry to it and you can master is a strong word you can wrap your hands around some basics of the uh composition and artistry in order to give you something that makes sense right it's like dancing yeah, yeah. it only takes a little bit to look like you know what you're doing <laughs> true true although i've got artist friends who would who would strongly you know disagree <laughs> no but then but then yeah. but then once you're once you're there from there to the next level is a whole nother thing like that's years yeah, of practice. yeah. But like but like to go from zero to 20 oh it doesn't take that much and then yeah. people go oh you're pretty good at this and like yeah yeah, yeah i'm all right no 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 <laughs> then the next level is a whole nother thing yeah, yeah. I so. couldn't even but, get there, man. Oh, I'm so jealous yeah. of you guys. I'm like a spatial idiot, and I couldn't. None of those books worked on me. <laughs> Same. Like, the basic books that came before the book you're talking about, Bill. Like, yeah, no, just didn't work. <laughs> Tom is well, still working on the magnet with the little iron filings. With iron filings, I, I can't <laughs> right? get the beard on the guy. It just doesn't work. Like, it just doesn't. Work. I, I can't That's tough do to do it. I understand. I can't do it. All right, color forms are what you're looking for. Yeah, yes, right, seriously. <laughs> and shrinky paint, dinks. Yeah. Paint, by, paint by numbers, perhaps. So, next round, Tom, hit us up. What have you got for the next round? Uh, wrinkle in Time. Yes! Thank you. Love it. Oh. Love it. Love it. And like, Take it away, my man. I, I just, no, like, I, I, I can't even. Like, it, it's, it's just so good, that book right? It blew my mind so much that, like, it, like, that, that that's so expansive and so like oh my god where is this coming from well like i just like I'm mostly oprah it. i couldn't wait to read more i, I absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. loved it matt so, lingo was oprah not playing oprah? around i don't know mostly oprah, oprah. <laughs> <laughs> no i read the whole series and i was just like completely engrossed and it was just taking me place i had no idea where it was going it completely just shattered me as i was like what the hell's happening it was so just bonkers, like next level type stuff. Madeline Lengel is just she like awoke me to the kind of the, to the notion of science fiction. I just beyond like the fantasy of say Narnia, I couldn't wrap my head around. I still kind of can't wrap my head around. It was well, yeah, so she good. It's like a physics concept, you know. Yeah, like just blows it out, and like next thing you know, you are in a fantasy world. Yeah, it's, it's so great. Right, right. Uh, wrinkle of time. I love it. Joe, what have you got next? 
Yeah, uh, I don't know if this is anything that's going to matter to anyone at all, but um, Panicula. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> Dude, I saw that book so many times back in the day. What is it about? Is it about a vampire rabbit? Yeah. Well, it's about obviously. Well, right. But <laughs> it seems so on the nose. Like surely there's more to it than just that. What's beautiful about it is it's about a dog and a cat who suspect that the new rabbit is is a vampire, and and it has to do with them sort of. Like talking about this new rabbit, yeah. like the rabbit doesn't sleep at night. Like what's going on? And and it's this where's mystery. that cloak with the really high collar? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't appear in mirrors, right? Like no, but there's like it, it it's it's a mystery in the sense that it presents you with yeah. questions that aren't answered right away. When I was a kid, so much yeah. is spoon fed to you when you're a child reading books. Yeah. And this was one that was like, yeah, it was a you. bit more of a complicated narrative than that. Yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. Presented you with some questions that may or may not have been true. There may or may not have been reliable narrators, which when you're like six or whatever I was when I was reading this, that was a whole thing. Yeah. And like usually you're 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 there to like believe what you're told. Right. And the concept of an unreliable narrator was bewilderingly alien to me. Yeah. At the time awesome. that I read it. And I remember reading it and then like, wait a minute, like the cat is full of shit. As cats do. Obviously. <laughs> All cats Obviously. Are evil. Cat's a liar. We knew that it's already. Like I'm with children here. <laughs> it's not even a spoiler. <laughs> cats so anyway, Panicula. And then the best yeah. part, the best part, hold on, I have to tell the story because do it. it's deeply damning to me, is there's a sequel called Celery Stocks at Midnight, and I'm in junior high. <laughs> I'm in junior high school, and the first time I ever asked out a girl, this girl named something we won't say, this girl that I, I tried to ask out, I said, like, oh, you know, you know, I, I think I tried to, like, talk to her in code to, like, meet me in the hall so I could ask her out. And I said something about celery stocks at midnight. And it was, like, the most embarrassing thing that ever. And I was laughed at. And it was a whole thing. And I blame, what's the name of the, uh, Deborah and James Howe, who wrote these books. Like, it's your fault that, that Vicky laughed at me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Joe, Vicky, who, say, knows, who no longer shall remain nameless. <laughs> exactly. I didn't have a last name. Anonymity lasted five seconds. You know what? Hey, Joe, where is she? <laughs> I have no idea. There's a 0% chance that she's listening to this. And if she is listening to this podcast, Vicky, you know what? We're both better off. <laughs> Joe, all I got to say is this. You had the courage to ask her out, though. I would have simply just shrunk in the corner and just, like, hated myself from afar. So, look, you're you're a better man than I was. Even though you got shot down, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So, was as much shot down as laughed at, which is, I don't know if that's better or worse. It, it's, it laughed at is worse. That's subjectively worse. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> Chris, what have you got for this round? When I was uh, in, in first grade, my elementary school published, like, a monthly newspaper you know it was like a newsletter really passed it out and this one time it had like this this puzzle you know hey solve mm -hmm. the puzzle you get a prize and uh it was kind of like a, a scavenger hunt around the school so you know by the time i had three minutes outside i had solved it gone to the office and before they're like oh great uh we're gonna give you a prize later and they the first edition of thackeray you know it was <laughs> no, they, they <laughs> They brought me in to a meeting with a school psychologist. <laughs> oh, my God. Is this about your sexual awakening? Because I don't want to hear it. <laughs> they, really, they, put, they put the Voight-Kampf test on this kid. And like, then, okay. <laughs> and then she took her shirt off. No, it was a dude. 
and, and the prize that they gave me, the the whole no, thing no, ended up know. like in, in, with me drafted into the gifted talent program. All that the prize is a vial of mentat juice. <laughs> <laughs> The prize was this is Chris's first exposure to Mein Kampf. This yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. No, close, close. <laughs> it, it was How it close? was Ben and Me by Robert Lawson. I don't know if you guys know this. It's uh, I vaguely remember this. It's the story of a, a mouse named Amos who befriends <laughs> Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this, this is a, this Disney is a big, made a Wait a minute. This is a big book back in the day. This is actually yeah. a pretty a pretty big book back in the day. Yeah. Now the version I have, I don't I don't know whether it was the original novel. It was published yeah. in 1939. Who knows what that looked like? But it was just this. You know, I mean, to me, you know, hey, a book, yay! Yeah, sure. <laughs> but you know, it was just really amiable, cool novel, sort of like my first exposure to historical fiction, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, and, and you follow you follow Amos as he helps Ben, you know, invent the Franklin stove, and uh, you know when Ben sends him up on the kite when he apocryphally discovered electricity, uh, Amos gets all super mad and like leaves him for years. He's like, screw you, that was a dick <laughs> move in my culture. And- <laughs> And and it's just a, this is a great great little story and uh, yeah. the story of how I found it is is I guess part of it for me. I only today found out that there was a Disney short, and so knowing that it was important to that many other people yeah. enough to, to, that yeah. Disney did it, that's kind of cool. That, that makes me cool. happy. Yeah, the one I'm going to choose for this round is uh, Han Solo at Star's End <laughs> by Brian Daly. <laughs> which was one of the first expanded universe Star Wars novels, came out in 1979. So in that crazy period between when Star Wars and New Hope came out and when Empire Strikes Back came out and people knew there was all kinds of appetite for more Star Wars and didn't know what to do because there was no continuity to follow, anything went, they made this trilogy of Han Solo novels. I only actually ever read the, the second one. So Han Solo at Star's End is the second one of the three. Splinter of the keep... Mind's Eye. Well, Splinter of the Mind's right. Eye was a was a Luke and Leia one, right? And and, ah. and so and, and that was by Alan Dean Foster, but this is by Brian Daly, and he did the Han Solo books, and um, and and I I got this at like a book fair or like through with a Scholastic Book Club or something like that. Which, by the way, both were the greatest gateway drugs for young readers oh, ever. Sure. Yes, massive. I mean, it was such a big deal. Scholastic Book Club came like, oh man, and I always felt bad for the kids who didn't get on that bandwagon because then when the books arrived. It was like bedlam in the classroom. Like, oh my God, the books are here. People are just like going crazy. As always, some small, some kid in the corner was like, oh, I didn't order any books. I feel like such a, such a feeb, you know? And, and inevitably, there's like, a, there's, well, there's always like a, a network, like people like always got like an extra book to make sure you have on hand so the kids didn't feel left out. So everybody got some books. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. That's, that, that, that's proper. But anyway, there were the kids who went and they bought the erasers. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Hansel at Star's End was basically this, this really pulpy, kind of this pure, Action story of Han Solo before he ever found, you know, Luke Skywalker and Ben Kenobi and all those guys running guns through the outer rim and has to get his, his basically has to get his ship up the code for this one sector because the local cops are going to hassle him. And he has to find this guy named Doc who's going to like basically like file new forged ID numbers on the Millennium Falcon, but Doc is missing and Doc's daughter has like Han help him, you know, help her find him out. And like he gets involved in this big imbroglio that involves this massive 
to do. And there's like dog fighting and robot gladiators and just they put a disguise kit on the Millennium Falcon and it's just like and there's like a reptilian bounty hunter and it just gets out of hand and my 10 year old mind could not handle it okay I read this book so often it fell apart in my hands I wrote down the front the indicia like the page numbers I had the really cool stuff and it was like three columns the three rows long I just I loved the hell out of this book and it's not great literature, but it honestly, it occupied my imagination for like eight months. And it was just such a great book. And at a time when you couldn't rewatch the movies, right? Things like the novelizations, these were things, these were your gateway back into a movie experience. So this and a couple other things were like my touch point to really relive Star Wars in a huge, huge way at a time when it really was occupying a lot of my bandwidth. If I were to go back and read it now and go, ooh, this is cringy, I wouldn't care because it doesn't matter. Because when it mattered is when I first read it. And when I first read it, that book, it just completely blew my doors off. And I, and I read it like at least a dozen times. And when you're in fifth grade, reading anything a dozen times is quite a lot. So it was, it, that book was, I just love it. Uh, one more round. Uh, Tom, what have, you, what have you got for us? I gotta say Shel Silverstein. I love Yes! That stuff is so great, man. Thank uh, you. I so, you know, I had the where the sidewalk ends, which was just kind of like a, a collection of like poems and limericks that were illustrated. Ends with yeah, a hug of war. Absolutely loved yeah, <laughs> yeah. hug of war. And like, you know, you had the picture of the kid sticking his finger up his nose, the poem yeah. snail that bites your finger off if you pick your nose. Like it was just like fantastic, greasy kid stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you, you also gotta um you also gotta give some some love to the giving tree. I know still makes me cry. Of, um uh, you know, people saying stuff about that. Oh, that story teaches the wrong lesson. And I'm like, I love it. I love that story. I still cannot I read like that to my kids without breaking yeah. up. Like I, I cry every yeah. time I read it. It's it's just such a powerful piece of writing. I love it. I, I had a great gift teacher who opened me up. Think Choose an Adventure, Shel Silverstein, a ton of Judy Bloom, a whole bunch of other great stuff, right? But, you know, we're talking about this, the giving tree and she goes, you ever notice how the boy never once said thank you? And that, that like, that seriously, that hit me. Like, to this day, I still think about that. Like, make sure you say thank you to the people who give you something. Like, always, like, that book deeply impacted my worldview in terms of gratitude and acknowledging when somebody does something that helps you, it's important that you acknowledge it. Um, don't be the boy. <laughs> exactly. And don't, don't be the, the tree. Don't be the tree either, necessarily. That's kind of messed up too. Yeah, don't be the tree Especially if you're a woman. This is the problem with the giving <laughs> tree that well, I that might be your want problem, to get into. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Can it just be a story about unconditional love and leave it there? <laughs> <laughs> it can be. It can't. It can't. It can't. It can't be. It can't be. Shel Silverstein, though, was like quite an interesting fellow. Um, apparently, he had romantic liaisons with like hundreds if not thousands of different women he was an absolute he was the giving tree but he only had one he only had one child uh daughter name i think i think shauna no there's actually i'm sad about this because if you ever read a light in the attic um she died early early on something something like some sort of childhood illness but a light in the attic is dedicated to his only daughter and there's something very very there's something very poignant about that when you read a light in the attic look at it and the poem a light in the attic in particular seems to be shell kind of speaking to this notion of the daughter he kind of knew but didn't and now she's gone and sort of grappling with that and as a kid you don't know what these things are all about so you just read it you're like oh it's a light in the attic you know and it reads like a shell silverstein poem like all the others but that one lands different but yeah go back and check it out it's, it's pretty it's pretty moving stuff but shell silverstein is great stuff and 
you can't separate the poems from the illustrations either. The illustrations no. are so bonkers. <laughs> it's like they really kind of inform like what the poem's about, you know? Like, dang, man. <laughs> Shell's going That's weird on me. On this guy, yeah. <laughs> the the, uh, the illustrations in those are, are very much, they, they occupied the same space in my head as Monty Python did as a kid. Where yeah, it's like, not, yeah. Where, like the Terry Gilliam stuff where it's like, yeah, there aren't rules, dude. Like, let the rules go. It's okay to do bonkers stuff. Yeah. Right. And from a storytelling standpoint, especially, it's like break down the, the barriers that you think are out there and just do whatever yeah. you need to do in order to tell the story. And yeah. I, those, I think, occupied that same section of real estate for me. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Joe, what's your pick for this round? Uh, if this is the last one we're going to do, I'm going to name check The Cricket in Times Square by George Selden. Oh, um, yeah. I love <laughs> I'm going to uh, name check Robert Asprin and the myth stories. Oh, the myth books. All right. Right. Yeah. But okay. Then, speaking of problematic, I have to have to have to go back to Piers Anthony because so much of the reading I did when I was 10, 11, 12, if we're looking at our preteen reading list was Piers yeah. Anthony was the Xanth books was sure. the, the books from the split infinity series, the books from the incarnations of immortality like Piers Anthony, you sexist, borderline pedophiliac weirdo. Just weirdo. Yeah, a lot, a lot, lot, lot wrong with the guy. But a he was like the original builder, Florida man, non-pariah. <laughs> I mean, just the capacity he had for fantastic concepts of how yeah. to how to craft how to craft a world within which to set a story. The guy right. had no peer. And and put a few characters in there that should that you'd care about. He had yeah. the capacity to create characters that you could relate with, especially as a kid. For me in the Xanth books, he wrote preteen boys in a way. And I think it's hard to divorce this, right, from his his troubling approach to um, preteen girls was right. that he saw them the way we did as preteen boys, except he's in his 30s and 40s. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, up. exactly. He's, he's kind but, of like, arrested. <laughs> he was able to speak to us. And as like you know, a character of Dor in the Xanth books, oh, to Dor. me, I mean, yeah. was exactly where I live. Yeah. Like you're yeah. like you're 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 bookish and you're yeah. awkward, and you yeah. don't know how to speak to girls. And but you, you see... want to be the big barbarian hero, right? Yeah. Or Castle Rugna, yeah. especially, right? Like Castle Rugna is a great one. And his his capacity for understanding how an eleven and twelve year old boy interacts with his world. Yeah. I don't think any other author did with the kind of authenticity that he did. The problem with, with Anthony is that he never grows beyond that. Like that's all it is. So when you yeah. go back to it now, you're like, Oh, this is messed up. This is still seeing it through that same prism. Yeah. And you're like, dude, how did this right. guy do 50 novels in this, in this vein? Like he, he never wants to move and past it. He he did. So, why, is, yeah. why is he naming books after the color of girls underwear yeah right oh, seriously god <laughs> even at like 13 i'm like i'm out i'm out i'm out like i got yeah. to like 13 or 14 and i was like yeah i think i'm good but yeah. but from the time i was like 9 to 13 yeah it was it was hard to find an author who understood me as yeah resonantly as he did um, I would like to think that in Earth 617, there's a Piers Anthony who got started writing things like in 2021. And maybe, maybe like 
got kids. And, and now went, he's Judy Bloom. Well, like, yeah, like, got kids. Like, <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah, he was like Michael Moorcock meets Judy Bloom somehow. Like, somehow he, he understood kids and there was no toxicity. And he just did, like, you know, but we don't live in that reality. We live in 616. And in that one, that, you know. I take Piers Anthony and I put him in a, a case with, like, the Joss Whedons and these people who are like, oh, you made such awesome stuff. And 1% of it is so awful that you, I can't. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it's you're capable of X, Y, and Z, and yet you have to. There's something wrong with you that you have to introduce yeah. this element to it, or you're you're personally so horrific that like it, yeah. it infects the rest of what you do. It's like, damn it, man! If you just not written those ten pages, we could have had a lot more fun here. But you did, yeah. you did, but, but you did, <laughs> but yeah. you did. You know, yeah. So anyway, anyway, had to name check it only because I no, read no, I so hear much you. of it when I was in this. Space. You know what, Anthony was a was a big part of my reading at that at that stage. You couldn't walk into like a Walden books and not see 25 Piers Anthony novels up there. He was a, such a huge seller, right? And so it's like we can look back how problematic it was, but Pete, to be perfectly honest, at that time people were buying those left, right and center and they just and it, it is a good example of the lens of the time and it just doesn't excuse it. But the lens of the time was more permissive of certain things than they are now and it really ages particularly particularly poorly. But um Chris, what have you got for this round? I'm going to bow to the the mocking I've taken tonight and and say Tolkien. <laughs> and by that, you mean, the Silmarillion, the Silmarillion, right? you, you mean the Silmarillion, right? Yeah, you mean the Silmarillion, <laughs> exactly. Uh, In your I, elementary no, I, school, was the Hobbit not like the book that you had to read? Yeah, get your yeah, pictures uh, off your freaking back about your reading level. Like that's what it was in my in my school. <laughs> I, I don't think I, I can't really remember whether I encountered Narnia or The Hobbit first, yeah. but they they are very much linked in my mind. I didn't read the Silmarillion until I was thirteen. So, so Chris, <laughs> I, Chris, I have to ask you, and this is all kidding aside. The reason why I read it when I was nine is because the Ralph Bakshi animated film came out in nineteen seventy eight, <laughs> and it was really big. It was kind of a phenom at that point. Tolkien was really huge anyway, so I think there were a lot of kids who saw the movie. And then liked what they saw for whatever reason, and then people were like, "Oh, let me hook you up with the books after." Now, was that you? Or, or like... absolutely not. Okay, I, I I don't even think that I had seen the Bank and Rast Hobbit film before I. Best um, Hobbit ever. If anything, it was D and D that brought me to Tolkien. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. I was I was introduced to D and D very very early, like you know yeah. I was like eight or nine. Now, how long did it take you to read Lord of the Rings the first time? <laughs> I just it finished took it. For, took me forever. Yeah. The first book took a couple of tries. Yeah, sure. As I recall. Yeah, same same uh, yeah, with me. Book one is so slow. Yeah. I remember um, reading Fellowship in junior high and getting to the Barrow Downs and being like, I just, I just can't anymore. Like, I need to do something yeah, that has no. something in yeah. it. Like, I can't. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe he made it past Tom Bombadil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Tom Bombadil <laughs> is like, he's like the slow zone. He's like, like there, though, right? Like, that's the same spot. He's like the first major test of your resolve. On. Like, how bad do you want it, kid? How bad do you really want it? Because Narnia is right there. Pridane's right there. You can have fun. You could be yeah. done with this thing and playing kickball by Saturday, kid. Is that, is that what you really want? <laughs> See, but what you don't know at that point is that. Helm's Deep is in the very Helm's next Deep movie. is on the way. I know. <laughs> Helm's Deep is a long way away. I was gifted Lord of the Rings by a friend of my mom's, a fellow teacher, and she was like, "Oh, you're gonna love this." And she gave me like one of the early, you know, paperbacks, and I was like, "Okay." I was trying to read it over the summer. I was like really having a hard time with it, and I kind of admitted, like, "Yeah, I'm having a really hard time getting through this." And she goes, "I know it's tough." She goes, "Stick it out to the two towers because when you get to the Battle of Helm's Deep, it's gonna be just crazy." And I'm like, "Well, okay." And I got to Helm's Deep, and I was like, my face melted. I was like, oh my god, this is so great! And then I was just like galloping to the end. I couldn't get, I couldn't get enough, you know. So, 
my last choice, I actually kind of name dropped this in my introduction, but I'm going to mention it again just because, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a book. It's a magazine. It's a magazine that I read when I was a kid. It's called Cricket. It was a literary magazine for kids. It was launched in 1973 by this absolutely visionary woman named Marianne Karras, who was, she was a German woman who came to America, was raising her kids, and was shocked by like the Dick and Jane level type stuff. She's like, we don't have this in Europe. This is absolute crap. We got to create something that's better for these kids. Kids deserve better. And so she created this a literary magazine. It was meant to be like a New Yorker for kids. It attracted like all the heavyweight talent of the day. Like they reprinted T.S. Eliot in the first issue. People like Ogden Nash and, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote for it. Like every, I mean, all these heavyweight people just wrote for Cricket. And Cricket was just like, it was like a seven by nine format. It was printed like a little book. Each issue was 48 pages. It had short stories, poems, folklore, alongside of like cartoons, crossword puzzles. There was a column at the end called Ask Old Cricket. This old grandfather Cricket would give you, give you advice. That was written by Lloyd Alexander. Right? No kidding. Yeah, he was like a regular gig of his was writing for Cricket Magazine. Like he knew the publisher really well. You know, she's like, hey, Lloyd, how you doing? You know, so, but Cricket was like. Is it all in Welsh? Right, seriously. And Cricket lasted for a long period of time. An ideological statement, really, that that kids deserve smart literature. They didn't make a huge amount of money because there was no ads in it. It was all subscription based. But my grandmother hooked us up with it because she was an educator. She saw what was going on with this thing. She, She firmly believed in the mission of the publication and got us with, you know, copies of it. So I... When an issue of Cricket came in the mail, I was I just stopped what I was doing. I just read it cover to cover. I just adored it. And it was my introduction to poetry, my introduction to short stories, my introduction to a lot of just sort of looks at other cultures. There was a whole um, cast of cartoon characters, the people of Cricket Town, right? You know, or Cr- Cricket Country, I guess it was. And there was like Cricket, Junior Cricket. There was a Ladybug. There was Mimi the Spider. There was Sluggo the Snail. And all these little cartoon insects would occupy the margins of the pages and they'd either be like having their own little adventures on there or sometimes they would just sort of stop and kind of like break the fourth wall and look up and like comment on the language going on in the actual content of the book and like oh wait a minute you know like and like oh this Ogden Nash thinks he's so smart or something like that or, or like you know it, like this is what this word means but it was like so aware it's so trusted in the intelligence of kids to want to try new things and learn new things and it was so smart and it was just fantastic and um cricket really blew me away as a kid i adored it i read it for a really long time in 2011 the whole thing was sold the people who ran it sold it because they were like 90 years old you know (laughs) they're like we can't do this anymore yeah those old issues of cricket are really quite fascinating and they were lavishly illustrated they were known for having these beautifully painted covers i mean they would get like top level artists to to produce magnificent art and like at a time when you had like pablum like highlights magazine and ranger rick sort of talking down to kids Cricket's like, no way, man. We're going to talk up to kids. And it was like that level of just, it was high literature and it challenged you to think harder. And like, they got bags of mail from kids. They had writing contests for kids. Cricket helped to generate an entire generation of writers who got started by reading Cricket. Like, it was just, it was like the whole New Yorker for kids really, it really fulfilled that mission in a big way. And that publication did a huge amount of good. And I will always love Cricket very, very deeply. Who's publishing it now? That's what I want to know. What's going on? When they sold it, what happened to it? No, no, uh, Cricket Media. St- no, no, Cricket Media is still going on. They've got a bunch of other ones. They've got Ladybug. They've got Spider. Cricket was aimed at kids nine to fourteen. So then they had other versions aimed at different age cohorts. You know, they kind of proliferated. But Cricket's still going on. You can still subscribe to it today. Cricket uh, is alive and well. If you wait long enough, someone will come to your door and try to sell it to you. 
Yeah, right. Like grit, you know. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> but, no You're trying to earn enough to get a rifle. I subscribed my brother to grit one time. He can never get unsubscribed. He hated me until the day he died. He still gets like, it to this day. He still probably still gets it to this day. Exactly. It's probably going to his gravestone right now. You know, it's a big pile of grit. You know. <laughs> No, but um, oh, I'm sorry. That uh, and, uh, no, but uh, no, no. But the thing with cricket that bothers me is that you can't find back issues of easily. Like, like I wish you could. I wish they would just put out like a an archive of the back, you know, catalog because it's just it's just so cool and the cartoons were so cool and it just it just occupied like a place in my head for a long period of time and it was part of like for a long period of time it was arriving at my grandparents' house when we went up to visit them. There was issues of cricket, cricket waiting for me. I'm like, oh man, my brothers weren't really into it. I check it out. It was like the big deal. And then after a while, they started sending it to my house instead, you know. But it was like, you had that, you know, like certain books. You had this like association of a, of a place and a person. Like a new issue of cricket was not just that. It was a, I'm going to see Nana and Pop Pop. I'm at a place that means something to me. I'm surrounded by love. I'm surrounded by these wonderful people who accept that I'm a reader and they really encourage it. It's like all those things magnified. And and the funny thing is when you talk to people who are cricket fans, a lot of them have similar feelings about it. Like the people who read it were like me. They were fervently passionate for it and they really believed in it and they loved it. And I, I still do. I, I really love cricket. So It was a, a more innocent time, I think, for us. And mm -hmm. our attention spans were different than our kids are. And I've shared a lot of these books with my own kids. And sometimes they'll hit. And like my yeah. kids, they'll read the Percy Jackson books till the covers fall off. They'll read the Harry Potter books. But I try to interest them in some of these, and it's almost like a too staid or too sedate of a pace to get some of these kids. Yeah, I've read some of these to my kids, or I did when they were little. So it was, it almost like going through this exercise of trying to call, okay, who, what, what books do I want to talk about was, was an exercise in nostalgia and loss in a lot of ways, realizing that some of these stories are, I put these books on my kids' shelves and said, Hey, read this. No, didn't happen. And they're yeah. like, or they started it. They read the first chapter. I'm like, yeah. dad, what are you talking about? This book sucks. I, so I appreciate this of, of us talking about stuff that we loved that, you know what, maybe it was, just a product of its time and will never come again. And um, I, I sometimes find myself thinking like, will I ever read through Lord of the Rings again? Will I ever read through Harry Potter again? Will I ever read the Perdane books again? Will I ever read the, the Patrick O'Brien? I don't know. Like how much time is left coming and there's other stuff to read and will I ever go yeah. back and see those again? Or, or are those things gone now? I, I appreciate that sense of loss, Joe. And like the one thing I want to say to give you a little bit of hope here is that you can go back. So your kids are going to have yeah. kids. Grandchildren. You know, I, I owe yeah. a tremendous amount of you know gratitude to my mother who always read to me growing up. And she's now getting a, yet another chance to do that in reading to my kids. I read yeah. to my kids, you know. I am looking forward to reading to my grandchildren. Like my kids have been yeah. through Lord of the Rings and the Pride yeah. books. I read Treasure Island to Thomas. You know, you got to yeah. kick out of that one. That one stuck. Not all of it sticks. Treasure Island. So but good. you yeah. know what? Like you can go back. Like they're going to get older and they're going to yeah. have children. Yeah. And you can be the cool grandpa who yeah. shows up, you know, with the leather bound. Here, we're in read Peter Falk. Night, you know? yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> when we read the, these kinds of books at this time, at this, this pivotal formative period in our lives, right? It takes who we are as kids and helps to inform who we will become as adults. Even if our kids don't read these things, we still are the people shaped by this work. 
and how we interact with our kids is in part informed by these works. And so these works don't completely go off into the ether. They live partly within us. There is another chance for these things to get a second life. That's a glorious thing. My Nana gave me these books when I was little called the monster books, right there from like the 60s. And these little thin books of this big purple monster. It's like monster cleans his house, monster rides in a car, you know, real basic stuff, right? It's the same Nana who gave me Cricket and some other things. They're just so great. And I just remember them because they're like beloved, very basic children's books. But, but they're something my Nana gave me. And we held on and I held on to them. And then I got to watch my mom, my, my Nana's daughter, read those books to Fiona when she's a baby. Right, my mom is gone. Fiona doesn't remember this. Right, those books are gone. They've been read to pieces, but I remember it. I couldn't recite to you a monster book, but that thing still landed with my daughter somehow. Somewhere deep down, Fiona is the way she is because her nana read to her those books. You know, and like that's that's how these things live on, and it's it's kind of a beautiful thing. It really is. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's just a beautiful thing, and. It helps to tamper my melancholy around it, if that makes any. I don't, I'm kind of rambling. I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, it totally makes sense. So that's, that's how I kind of yeah. So. <laughs> I love so. how these things live on now. Oh my god, yeah, they really do. They really do. So. so I want to mention one more thing before you close, Bill, and like you right on. No, it's all good. Earlier, and I just want to touch on it. Like yeah. I think we really got to celebrate the Scholastic Book Fair. I mean, like the thing did so much for people who wanted to read. It got so many kids Hell reading. Yes. I'm Even fortunate the kid that like, didn't want to read got excited. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, yeah. You got the little flyers that were printed on like the same paper that they printed the funnies on, you know, and you're like yeah. circling the, the stuff you want. Oh, man. That was so fantastic. I was fortunate enough. I got to actually work with Scholastic for a little while as a client. And the thing that you were doing in the beginning of the episode, Bill, where you're like, that was me in the meeting. I'm like, you guys have never, you know, you can't underestimate the impact that you've had on, on, on children, you know, who are reading. And like, I've watched my wife go through this whole thing with the PTA yeah. where she's been in charge <laughs> of this, the, our elementary school's book fair. Yeah. And then she's then passed that on to somebody. And it, it's, it's just such a great like experience experience for kids and like we i don't think we just we say enough about it that um yeah about how good it is for turning kids on to reading like i just i, I love the heck out of it i love how it gets kids excited about reading wholeheartedly agree i don't care how much money they made off of it the point of the matter is that kids were electrified by the prospect of getting a new book it was just this huge thing in my mind anything that gets kids that fired up to read can't possibly be an entirely bad thing i'm willing to give it massively away and yeah, the Scholastic, the Scholastic Reading Club flyers, they showed up in class. It was like, it's like everybody got a golden ticket. Like everybody's like, oh my God, I would go home and I would read that thing. Like I was going through for forensic evidence. I mean, every, everything I had to be very, you good. had to build a case. For your yeah, parents. man, I built a case. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> right, exactly. Chris, a hundred percent. I'm like, okay, I, I know my parents would be cool. My parents would rather I ordered X. I want to order Z. Now, let's see if we can somehow get to Y, and Y is more in my favor. <laughs> it is my, my parent, you know, because I want a whole bunch of these books. They're all so fantastic. They're so cool, you know, and yeah, it was just the, frankly, at a time when you really couldn't get out to bookstores or when order anything you want online, there was a scarcity to great books, you know, for, for as a kid. And that scarcity, this is like a, this is like a thunderbolt, like that scarcity doesn't matter for you kids. You got this beautiful little Sunday papers level flyer. 
It's got four pages, all the books you could possibly imagine. You like dinosaurs? We got dinosaurs. You like Judy Bloom? We got Judy Bloom. You like rabbits that look like vampires? We got that too. You can have it all. And you're just like, I can't handle this opportunity. Mom, well, please. Then, like, then they would have like in the like at your school library, there would be like the 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 three nights where it would be like the sale itself. Like you could that's walk the book sale, the, the book fair. Right. Like the flyer Dude. would be like, oh, here's yeah. what's coming. Like every quarter you get the, the flyer, but then you'd actually go to there and it was like Christmas in April or whatever the heck it was. And you would walk through, and the best part was my parents like literally like almost like get whatever you want. Like these are books, get books, yeah. go ahead, buy whatever, like go get yeah. five, 10, 12 books, whatever. And you'd be like, Oh, flat Stanley. And like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You're getting books. I don't, I, it's hard to describe. It's like you, it's uh, like you just been given six or seven keys to different parts of the mold. Yeah. Like, like it, it landed that hard. No, it really did. Like as a kid, you're like, I can't believe I have this many new books and they're mine. And I can read them as many times as I want. Like, like, like it just, it, it was such a huge thing. And the parents who got it, like, run wild in the book fair. Honestly, every one of those parents deserves a big, shiny medal and a beam of sunlight right on them. Because honestly... To the, to the point, Bill, uh, where, like, when... And they still do it. It still happens. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when I take my kids, I, the lesson I learned was, this is this is one of those say yes things as a parent. Like, when your yep. kid's like, I want this book, yep. this book, this book. Yep, yep, yep. Like, the only rule I have is, like, books with toys. I don't need the books with toys. Like, bring me books that are books. Yeah, and yeah, I, I hear you. You can have as many Same books thing, yeah. as you want. If, I, I remember vividly, like, you know, we used to do the order form, you know, where you, you'd have to mail it in and the books would arrive yeah. like at the fair or in the yeah. big box, you know, they could take yeah. out yeah. in the classroom. I vividly remember having that flyer in my hands and like the back seat of the bus practicing what I was going to say to my parents yes. so I could get all the books that I wanted. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That is truth. That is, I, yes. I, I didn't um, quite have the license to get everything that I wanted, but like yeah. I was going to make a case for it. Like I was going to yeah. sit down with my dad and be like, dad, this is going to be the loss of about half a paycheck for you. And here's how I'm going to spend it. And, <laughs> like, and I wouldn't get close to what I wanted. Yeah. I wanted, yeah. This really matters enough. <laughs> yep. So before we wrap up a final thought, so when I was growing up, we would often visit my grandparents' house, which was this magnificent old place with three floors, doors that took skeleton keys, and bookshelves nestled in all kinds of nooks and crannies. Uh, so there were books everywhere, and it was perfect for my Nana in particular, who had a degree in child psychology and who spent most of her career as a guidance counselor in her local school district. Now, as a lifelong reader, she keenly appreciated what it meant for kids to get their hands on a good book. Now, when we stayed at my grandparents' place, the bedroom that my brothers and I slept in adjoined the master guest bedroom where my parents would sleep. And there was a cased opening in the wall that connected the two rooms, right? And when you walk through that cased opening, on either side to the left or to the right, there were these slender bookshelves built right into the walls there, like this little tiny secret micro library, right? It was the coolest thing. And as a kid, I loved to check out the books that were occupying this physical boundary between childhood and adulthood. And my Nana knew it too. And she chose very carefully what books would could be found on those shelves. She knew which ones would be within my grasp. She knew which ones would be worth pulling off the shelf. She never talked about the books on those shelves. She never mentioned what new books were there. She just quietly, when we weren't there, updated the collection over time as we grew older, removing to another place the books we'd outgrown and replacing them with something else from her own personal library. And there was a silent understanding that the books that were kept there could be borrowed without asking. 
just as long as they were returned when we were done with them. It was really freaking awesome. And that was where, as I grew out of the, you know, up to the 12-year-old to the 13-year-old place, uh, when I was in that kind of transition zone, that's when I quietly discovered titles that would impact me deeply as I grew into adulthood. I'm talking things like Flowers for Algernon, Animal Farm, Fahrenheit 451, and more. And it's no small coincidence that around the same time that my Nana was doing this, I also discovered my mom's old college manual typewriter and began writing stories of my own on it. You know, what we read when we're growing up plays such a big part in who we might one day become that when my wife and I had kids of our own, we made sure that our bookshelves always remained within reach of the kids. We figured it would be a far better thing for young hands to pull a book off the shelf and maybe damage it than it ever would be to tell them, you know, stay away from that, don't touch that, don't, you know, let your curiosity go unanswered. So we offered the many books from our childhood that we had been saving so we could pass them along. We put them on the shelf where the kids could get them, knowing full well that they would probably get wrecked in the process. That's what happened to my Choose Your Own Adventure books, what's happened to my monster books. It's okay. We made sure to take frequent trips to the bookstore. That's where, you know, the kids never had to pay for books out of their own allowance. And we made sure to let the kids know that after tucking each night, nobody was ever going to really bust them for reading past bedtime. And it was easy for me to do this because these are the things that I wish my parents did for me when I was little, right? I just wanted to share my love for books with my kids. And I hope that maybe, you know, it was something that they would grow to love too, which is why two of my favorite memories of parenthood are the times when both of my children, I was offering to read them a bedtime story. There came a point when instead of them giving me their book for me to read to them, they opened it themselves and they said, no, thanks, dad. I can do it. And there we went. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. I went to a summer camp that had a circus curriculum that taught you circus skills on the side, and I learned how to eat fire and juggle that summer. And Tom, I'm telling you right now, I wish I learned how to ride a unicycle as well because I wanted to do that so bad and I couldn't. But I got oh, to learn so how to eat fire, which is pretty badass. So eating fire is badass. They didn't do it, that with us. For it was totally cool, and I got it, and I got a chance to mess around the trapeze. Man, super cool, super super cool. Liability was a different game back then. <laughs> Dude, man, honestly, we look back finally because we're the ones that survived. Girl, this is all over. <laughs> yeah. Not just that. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fire eating is, is my classic when I'm meeting people in like a corporate environment or something like that. It's like, and then tell us something you don't know, and then we don't know about you. I'm like, hi, I'm Dilkoff, whatever. And by the way, when I was 13, I became a <laughs> I became a trained circus fire eater. What? <laughs> like, over to you guys now that I broke the whole exercise. And they're like, oh, man. <laughs> like,